0: Our job was to make make people customers for life or friends for life and to try and treat them. You know, we give them the best possible experience that we could. We did do that. And the company is sort of, it's been so long now that it just feels like it's bread in the bone, to be honest with you. But this, you know, this relentless focus on the customer. You know, Tom always said, and I'll never forget this. And I remind, I remind the younger people coming into the company of this all the time. But the best customer you'll ever have is the one you already have. You've got to retain people because they will they will be advocates for life. And I can't tell you how often I run into people who say, oh, I love the Zooto. I've lived in one of your buildings for three years and I hated to leave. Or I'm such a, I'm, you know, I'm a flag waver of the Zudo. And it's because of the experience that they've had with our people.
1: both from an educational standpoint, as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Thank you for listening today. Before I introduce my guest for today's show, I wanted to tell you about an offering that uh, Co-Enterprises, my company, has for career counseling. My question to you is, are you new to the business? Are you restless for a new opportunity? Are you a mid-career professional that is uncertain about your situation? Or are you a senior executive that's ready for a next career or moving on to something new? What I offer is the opportunity for you to sit with me for two one-hour sessions. I give you an assessment that you provide for me prior to the first meeting, and then we go through that, and then we devise a three-year plan potential. For our second meeting, then I would go over that with you. For follow-up after that, we would then point you in the direction of how to implement that plan. If this is of interest to you, please reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com, J-O-H-N at C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot Thank you for listening to this and on to the show. Welcome to episode 48 of Icons of DCR Real Estate. This represents the end of my second year um, recording this podcast, and I hope you've enjoyed all the episodes that you've had a chance to listen to. It's been a lot of fun doing it, and I know that my guests have enjoyed it as well. So thank you again for, for joining me. For this episode, I'm pleased to introduce... Julie Smith. Julie is the Chief Administrative Officer of the Bazuto Group. Earlier, I interviewed Tom Bazuto, the founder of the organization. Bazudo Group, of course, is one of the leading apartment developer and managers in the region and does tremendous jobs managing their own properties as well as third parties for many, many other developers and owners of property. Julie talks about the growth of that property management business that she started when, during the, the recession of the early 1990s and the growth of that based on primarily institutional investors help, helping in that expansion. Julie grew up in uh, upstate New York and Niagara Falls and uh, was a product of two school teachers. And so she learned how to work with uh, young people from her own parents' experience and her dad was a huge influence on her, and she picked those lessons on to leading people and doing a great job and bringing sanctuary, as the, she calls, as the company calls it, to their residents. So the customer experience is critical to her, and she talks about that at some length. So I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Julie Smith. Welcome, Julie. Thank you for joining me on Icons of DCR Real Estate.
0: Thanks, John. Delighted to be here.
1: That's great. So, Julie, what is your current role at Bazudo? How has it evolved in your transition from EVP or president of the property management to chief administrative officer?
0: Well, I, I'm currently the chief administrative officer, and I work with my partner Mike Schlegel, who is the chief operating officer. And between the two of us, we helped Toby Vizzuto run the company. And I've been in that role for a little over five years now. And I spent really the first 25 plus years of my career working, running the property management company effectively for the organization. And 25 years is a long time to run a shop. And I never intended to be in that role for that long. But, but here I found myself there twenty i guess twenty three years later, and Toby had recently taken over as the CEO of the company, and Tom had turned the reins over to him and stayed on as the chairman of the organization and it was a new role, and i had I had thought I had been in the role for too long, and I needed to I needed to move so other people could grow. so if I got out of the way, then a lot of people could could rise or be this sort of chain of promotions that would happen. And I also felt that I had 25 years of experience with the company at that point, and I could really provide Toby with a lot of support. And we were sort of changing sort of the structure of the company. It had, it had up until that time but really been run by the founders. The company was a lot larger, and we just needed to build out the infrastructure a little bit more. So I suggested to Tom and Toby and Rick at the time that we think about changing my role so that I could provide more support to Toby, provide more support to the organization, and provide some growth opportunities for other people who had earned them and who mm-hmm. were, you know, sort of essentially waiting in line. So so that was really the, the genesis of, of the role.
1: Can you describe the difference between the CAO and the CEO what their roles are
0: so basically we split the house so the coo run by mike schlegel who was before um he was in this role he was president of the construction company really runs the line companies. so they run the property management operation run, run all the p, the, the p and l's for the company the construction company the development company and then i run what i'm just going to call the back of the house for all the support systems so i run hr all the HR functions, I run all the marketing functions, technology functions, research, strategy, that sort of thing. And between the two of us, we, we basically guide the company.
1: So property management doesn't report to you, reports it reports Mike. to Mike.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Although that person, Stephanie Williams, who is the current right. president, she was someone who I sponsored, I both mentored and sponsored her. And so I it really prepared her to take the role and I continue to be her mentor and her sponsor. So, you know, which is a nice way of saying that I stick my nose into <laughs> BMC's business as much as I possibly can. But no, we have a great working relationship and, and I know it like the back of my hand. Of so it's, it's easy for me to be able to provide perspective to her.
1: So you're the first interviewee i have had that works at the same company as an earlier guest, Tom, of course, on my podcast. So I've set the table about the company, but I'm curious about your perspective of the same story as perhaps the first woman executive there for a while. Thinking about when I first met you in my office when I was at Lake Mason in the probably the early 1990s, mm-hmm. when Tom and you came in. Introducing your property management services, we were overseeing foreclosed assets for other lenders at the time. Certainly, it was a difficult time in the market. At that point, you were just beginning the third-party management business, as I recall, which has now grown to be one of the largest in the region, if not in the country. Talk high-level why about why the company took that approach and how it has been integral along with other verticals like construction, development, landscaping, and and that have made Zudo, a fully integrated operating
0: company. Yeah. So we, when we originally started the property operation company or the property management company, it was fully intended just to manage our own assets that we developed, and we were doing that. But as a startup company, and I started in 1989, the company started in 1988, so we tr- truly were a startup in every definition of the word. It, it certainly fit. We, you know, we were cash strapped as an organization, and we were. We were making it, but it was when one of our one of our equity partners asked us to take on a troubled asset, a very large troubled asset out in Centerville, Virginia, an asset that we had developed and built, by the way, when we were with Oxford. We said, well, okay, we'll do that. It had a very large property management fee, and we thought, that's great. That's recurring cash. That's something that we could use right yes. now because we were... If you think about it at the time, we were really living off development fees and construction fees and that sort of thing. And so that was the first asset we, that we took over. And we realized that we could do it, that it was really no different than running assets for ourselves. And we did a good job. And we took we took over this troubled asset. We crushed it, really made it a true success. And that really got our start in, in third-party did, was management. Was that
1: your responsibility?
0: Yeah, it was my responsibility. And we still laugh to this day because we took it over and it was like Labor Day, it might have been, it was, 80, it was probably 90, I guess, at that point. And, and we always seem to be taking over assets on Labor Day. We just took over our first asset in California over, <laughs> over Labor Day, but it's always over a holiday. But we did, you know, that was our start. And so then we, we took over a couple of assets for AEW. And, you know, our strategy was that we would crush it. That if we took over an asset, we were going to make it worth a whole lot more than it was when we took it over. And so that's when we came to visit you to see what else we could do because we liked assets that were troubled because we thought that we could turn them around and, and we did so that was really that was our start in in third party management and we realized it was a business line that would take a while to be to be profitable but it would give us recurring cash
1: in the mindset that you were in at that time what did you do. To figure out how to crush it, I guess at that time. I and mean, what did you do specifically to try to, you know, take on a troubled asset? Yeah. What did you, what, did you, what, what uh, action steps did you take when you came onto a new project like that?
0: You know, we always focused on revenue. We just knew from doing this and we had all worked together at Oxford and I had sort of at that point, I had done every role that I was, that I was doing. I had been a property manager. I had leased apartments myself. I had a marketing director, you know, I'd been a trainer. I had sort of filled all of these roles before coming to Bizuto. So I was really prepared for that. And I, and I just knew that the way to win was to drive your top line. And so when we would go into an asset, we would really look at why the top line wasn't growing or wasn't where it needed to be. And then we would, you know, put strategically, look at staffing, look at marketing, look at curb appeal, look at, you know, look at rents. And we always focused, we, we knew we could win if we could get higher rents than anybody else. And so our strategy was always that we would crush it on the revenue side. We knew we could do the rest of it but you know ex- revenue you can you can add more value to your bottom line so much faster by growing your revenues than by managing your expenses although you know, expenses always need to be managed but if you can really you know maximize your rents maximize your occupancy maximize other income you can really drive value so that was always our strategy so understanding
1: the competi- competitive market too yep. understanding
0: the market understanding where rents were setting up a sort of variable compensation systems at the site level that rewarded everybody for, you know, for revenue maximization, making sure that we had total alignment from, you know, our, our con- our contractual experience with the owner to the employee's sort of contractual experience with us. And that's, and that's how we did it. And that was always nice. our
1: philosophy. You know, it's, it's really interesting. I just interviewed Marty Hoffman, who yep. developed morph Yep. And his, his, Approach was exactly the opposite. I mean, he was, he's a construction guy. So mm-hmm. he came at it as costs were the most important thing. He's primarily selling property, not renting at yeah. that time. Yeah. So he had a completely different orientation to it. And he, he knew he could control costs yeah. and he could make money if he controlled costs enough. So it's just, it's funny how. Different yeah. developers have different perspectives.
0: Yeah, and and it's and, and I, I can absolutely see that, like how that would really work on the construction side. And I would say we would do that. But on the property operating side, though, your, your fixed costs are the ones you don't have a lot of control over. So taxes, for instance, are one of your top expenses. Payroll are one of your top expenses. You know, just sort of, you know, it's the things that keep a property running, elevators and your contractual services and all of that. So you know your variable expenses are the ones that you can control are sort of nickels on the floor. They don't make as much of a difference. So that's why we always had to
1: focus on the revenue. Mm-hmm. So let's let's go back to the origin story, if <laughs> we can, here, Julie. So I understand you grew up in Niagara Falls, New York.
0: Yep, Niagara Falls. Yep, it's actually a place
1: <laughs> I've been there. Yeah. actually, only on the Canadian side. I have yeah. to say, I admit so. Uh, so, talk about your youth and uh, growing up.
0: Yeah, so I grew up in Niagara Falls. My whole family was from Central New York and Western New York. My mom was from the Buffalo area. My dad grew up outside of Syracuse, and so we settled in Niagara Falls. My parents were both school teachers,
2: really? and
0: mm-hmm, yep, and uh, so yeah, I, grew, I we spent I spent my whole my whole uh, childhood there until I you know went off to college. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a great place to grow up. It was very different. You know, it's it was a very it was a thriving community, primarily driven by a lot of blue collar industries, the, the chemical industries specifically in Buffalo and along the Niagara River. And you know, and then that community suffered from the impact of the Love Canal. And that, you know, that was completely changed the trajectory of that whole community. So it's a shadow of its former self, unfortunately today. But when I was growing up, it was
1: great. So, your parents were both teachers. Did they meet in school, or did they? Yeah,
0: they met. You know, they were they 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 grew up in the '30s, so they you know that was at a time where you you got married if you went to college, you got married right out of college. So they were you know quite young when they met. But yeah, they met, and and yeah, my and my dad was a principal. He was a school teacher until he was a principal, and he did that until he retired.
1: Did they work in the same school? Or? No,
0: no. My mom, I mean, very traditional roles. So women didn't work after they had children. So, yeah, of course, my mother stopped working after my sister was born, and, and then she went back to work when we were, you know, when we were a little bit older. And yeah, But she was a home ec teacher <laughs> back when they oh, had really? home ec. Mm-hmm, yep, home economics,
1: yep. So you yeah. learn you learn what to do at home then real early. And
0: real yeah, early. you know it's interesting because my mother my mother really was sort of a modern day Martha Stewart, and um, <laughs> to this day, of course, we didn't appreciate that back then because Martha Stewart you know there wasn't that you know that importance placed on perfection and, and sure. on um, aesthetics and you know my parents grew up during the depression and and I remember. this day and I still practice it you know my mother trying to make everything that was put on our kitchen table always look a little better with a garnish of some parsley or some paprika or something like that and you know and 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 in our business it's all about the details and so I have such a strong eye for detail and I really attribute that to her eye for detail because you know back then people and we didn't have money growing up we were very middle class you know if you School teachers don't make much money, oh. and we had three children in our family. And you know, people tried to do the best that they could do with what they have. And so, I just remember that growing up, that our house was tiny, but it was neat, and it was always, you know, always like, It was always ready for guests. And
3: mm-hmm.
0: you know, we always say that at Bizzuto that you you need to be ready. You need to be ready for guests at any given time. So it, those those little things that you learn as a kid you know, that really stay with you.
1: But since you're both your parents were teachers, obviously Mm -hmm. discipline and school was important to
0: you. Yeah, yeah. My, you know, my dad was so good. He was just beloved. And he, you know, he was a principal and he was a principal at all different kinds of schools and was, you know, till the day he died, he would run into people whose kids he had had in school, or he'd remember parents or people that worked in the schools. And He was such a kind person. He treated everyone with so much respect. It didn't matter if you were the janitor or if you were a teacher or, you know, someone who was bringing in lunches and he just had such a following and it really served him well when he'd have, you know, difficult situations with kids and he'd have to deal with the parents and because he was so fair and, and respectful and compassionate. The was, high school teacher? No, elementary or school. Elementary. It Was always elementary school. Yeah. So you know, I saw him deal with like really challenging situations over the years, and he just he just did it really deftly. But he earned it because he had he had a lot of what I you know we just call it money in the bank. Like you know you sort of you try and build up your savings account with you know acts of kindness because oh, there are going saying. to be times. When you're going to need to dip into that. And so that's something that I learned from him, you know, to really to listen. Build up goodwill. Yeah, build up goodwill. Really, be you know, listen 90% of the time, talk 10% of the time so that you really understand what you're dealing with.
1: It's great. Well, you know, the reason I ask these questions is that I, I try to find out what really builds somebody to the core. And you just told me a lot about why you are who you are. What yeah,
0: you know, really shaped, shaped by them. And I, you know, I had a great relationship with both of them, but my dad and I had a very special relationship. And, you know, he, he used to, have, like when we were teenagers, my girlfriends would all come and hang out at our kitchen table and they would pour their hearts out to my father. <laughs> and he honestly would say nothing and nod his head and sort of, you know. Just to listen. Listen and made pour us cups of tea, and then they'd all say, "Oh, I feel so great after I talked to your father." You know, they just needed a sounding board. You know, and that's what a lot of people need. Of they can. Course. I, I, I firmly believe people are more than capable of solving their own problems. They just need some help getting there. You know, so yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. So you went to college at the uh, State University of New York Oswego. Yeah. What drove you there?
0: Well, you know, when I was growing up, again, I like I said, we you know, we lived in a really nice community, but it was all relative. Right. And so kids graduated from from college and they either went to state college, state university or state college or they go to community college or they didn't go to college at all. They just went out and got jobs. Those were really the three doors that people chose from because no one had money. To go to travel, A, outside of a two and a half hour distance or three hour distance. And my father had gone to SUNY Oswego and uh, we had family around there. And so I really was just choosing between SUNY schools. I looked at some of the other private colleges in the Rochester area, but at the end of the day we couldn't afford it. You know? so, what we, so I went where we could where I we could afford for me to go, where I could afford to take some loans, my parents could pay what they could. And, and so it ended up, that's where I ended up.
1: And what did you yeah. major in there?
0: I just majored in business administration, communications, you know, it was just uh, sort of a, you know, you know, I, I thought I would teach. I, I absolutely thought that I would be a teacher. My brother is a principal. I, but I, when I was a junior in college, I spent a year in Copenhagen and I did a long corn study there. And it was really the first time I'd been anywhere. I hadn't traveled, we hadn't traveled as a family. I hadn't, I don't think I was on my first airplane until I was 15 years Mm -hmm. old, but it was different. You know, this was during the sixties and seventies, but I did, I did do this, I did do this foreign study and, and that just opened my eyes. You know, I hadn't seen anything and I realized that once I got over to Europe and so I traveled like crazy. I worked the summer before I went. I worked and waited on tables and made as much money as I possibly could so that I would have money to travel. And I traveled the whole time I was there. And that completely changed my perspective. You see a lot of Europe? Oh, yeah. We went every weekend. Yeah. We went and we went, you know, we went to East Germany back when you had to go through Czech Charlie. Yeah. We saw the Berlin Wall. We went to Poland. We went to, wow. you know, we just went. We went everywhere. We were behind the
1: Iron Curtain at that time.
0: We were. And that was quite it was just the whole thing was just an amazing experience. And so that changed my perspective because, you know, I went there not knowing anything. And I came home thinking very differently about the world and sort of what, what I was gonna do in it. So uh, I met I met a girl who became a good friend of mine there. She was from Pittsburgh and we were juniors. And we had to start thinking about what we were going to do when we graduated because going home to Pittsburgh and going home to Never Falls was just <laughs> not an option because there were no jobs. I mean, right. this is during Ronald Reagan. Right. Had just taken, he had just taken the presidency, Jimmy Carter, and the economy was in a really bad place. And there were no jobs. And so we were, you know, musing on a train about where we'd go. And we said, well, her sister lived in Washington, was working for Arnold and Porter. And we said, well, let's just go there. I mean, she wasn't offering to house us. She wasn't even offering to make us dinner, but we just thought, well, we'll know one person mm-hmm. and maybe she can help us. So we both graduated and packed up our cars and house sat in Georgetown for a month and then found jobs, got an apartment you know, and just started, yeah. So we never spent a night at her sister's house, but that was really how we ended up in Washington. I'd never been to Washington. It just sounded good. Mm-hmm. So, and after spending that much time in Europe, I thought, you know, if I don't like it, I'll go someplace else. Sure. So, so that's how I ended up in Washington.
1: And what was your first job?
0: So I went to work for Warner Communications, which was the film company. I worked in their public affairs office down at 2020 20 K Street. Sure. And then I really felt like I had landed, you know, because here I was in the center of the business universe in D.C. working for... film company. And it's super fun working for a company like that because, you know, I got to go to all of these big openings. And again, you have to remember, I was a kid from Niagara Falls. I hadn't seen a lot. And so I remember going to the White House, meeting Ronald Reagan, doing all kinds of stuff on Capitol Hill because it's what you do in public affairs. Meeting Christopher Reeve, we had the big, the before big, before he uh, had his accent, we had the big, the premiere of Superman at the wow. Uptown Theater, wow. DC. we all know where that is, right? Sure, and, and that's where we met Christopher Reeve. And yeah, and I was sending all those photos home. And so that was a really fun job because again, you know, really opening my eyes. Yeah. And I remember sharing, sharing a taxi with Elizabeth Dole, her right. Dale Bumpers and her husband, Bob Dole, were debating on the Hill and we on to the debate. And, and I was going back to my apartment in New Mexico Avenue. And she said, do you, want to, do you want to share a taxi? Which I couldn't even speak because I was just in awe of her. I thought she was the most incredible woman I'd ever met. And yeah, we shared a taxi and she went back to her apartment at the Watergate. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, I want to be just like her, you know? So you just have these little moments um, in your career that, you know, stay, really stay She's with a you. She's very
1: inspirational.
0: Oh, she was incredible. And I followed her, you know, you know, after, you know, from that moment on with, with particular interest, but that was a great, that was a really fun job. But, you know, I was sort of low gal on the totem pole there and I had no interest in being in public affairs. Really? And so one of the lobbyists in that office said, I want to introduce you to a friend of mine who was working at the BF Sol company. And we had lunch and she said, you know, you, you ought to really. You'd be really good in real estate. You'd be really good in property operations. You know, you've got you've got the right the right stuff. Who for was that. this?
1: Did you remember?
0: Oh gosh, I can't remember her name now. I'll think. Of, I will think of it. But I did go work for Roger Ellison. Oh sure. You know, the be- so so she arranged for these interviews, and it was running property management, and At they the real estate
1: investment trust.
0: Yes, yes, it, yes exactly, and mm-hmm. they they decided to give me a. 350-unit apartment project in Reston, Virginia, as a general manager. And, of course, I knew nothing about this business. As a general manager? As right a out general of Right out of, like, I knew nothing. I had no experience whatsoever. Wow. And they gave me that job. They saw a lot more. They saw saw a lot more of me than I actually saw myself at that point. And... So I literally had to figure that business out and, and I had to move out of Washington and that was culture shock moving to Reston, Reston. was a different market then. Reston was the, was like the country. Yeah, like there was nothing in yeah. between DC and Reston. You know, you had to go out route seven to get there. And the, I don't even know toll road was built or if it was built, it wasn't what it is today. And anyway, so I, I, I moved out there and i and that's really where I figured it out. And I, you know, I just needed, I needed help. So I, again, I just sort of used what my father taught me and I really made, you know, I, I tried to be a good leader and a good manager and I learned from everyone on the team. And we we really turned that place around. That's and great. we even had a corporate apartment program. This was like 1980 or 86. And we had a corporate apartment. And then they decided they're going to sell the asset because we really got it stabilized and all of that. And so I didn't know what I was going to do next. And they said, Hey, you know, we're building apartments down in Fort Lauderdale. And this was like the advent of this new luxury apartment where you actually have washers and dryers. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it was this whole new a you know, whole new scene with clubhouses, and you know, sort of a take on the old, you know, the Oakwood model. Sure, but it was happening all over the country, and so I moved down to, Florida, to uh, Fort Lauderdale and opened up two assets for them, and met a lot of people. Joined the Florida Apartment Association, and you know, just made a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. Um, who were doing similar things and sort of I was like okay this is how this is how this is how we run it this is how we do this new luxury world and uh, while I was down there I, it was maybe a year and a half in a group of people from Oxford came and shot my property and you can always tell if your property is being shopped because it's mm-hmm. a bunch of professionals sure. who are looking for an apartment of And so I just sort of asked them who they were and what they were up to. And they said, oh, you know, we're, you know, we're from Washington, D.C. And we're looking at some assets down here. And And I was like, oh, I'm dying to go back to Washington, D.C. And so we got in conversation and they said, hey, if you if you're serious about that, give us a call. If you, you know, if you really if you really do want to come home. And so that's what I did. I did want to move back. I did call them. Was Tom one of them? He wasn't, he wasn't one of them, but I met Tom after that. And so I, they hired me as a marketing coordinator and I had to go in the field. I'd go work at a property in Petersburg, one of the properties they developed so I could learn, learn their way of doing things. Right. And so I did that for three months and they came in, I was a marketing coordinator and Tom was running that whole region. And He, his develop, they were developing so many properties at the time that they streamlined it and they had these prototypes. So you could have a woods theme. You could have a hunt club theme. You could have a water theme or a garden theme. And as a developer, you would type a piece of ground, pick a theme. The marketing department would take over. We had like one ad agency. We had one interior designer and it was it was plug and play. And it was all about getting as much done as you could possibly get done. Many properties built. And so when we were, I guess, at our heyday, we were about 55,000 units. And so I had, yeah, Mm -hmm. well, yes, this was early 80s. That's exactly right. This was before the tax laws changed. And yeah, we were, those were the go-go years. And we were Cranking, cranking out. We're we're working all working really, really hard. But it was super fun and learned so much about the development business. And was your
1: work only in the Washington region at the time? Or uh, no,
0: we were in. We went from Virginia Beach to Boston. Really, yeah. So Pennsylvania, we were doing stuff in Philly, in the suburbs of Philly, Richmond. Williamsburg, Virginia Beach, right. up into uh, New Hampshire, Connecticut. And it was just for this region. And then there are other regions that were developing around the country. But that that is where I met Tom. And and then I, I moved into operations into, you know, where I could run a P and L. Uh, and you know, and then then the the sky fell in, right? The tax laws changed and then the music stopped and then it got really difficult. <laughs> Because all of these properties were overfinanced and were right. not performing particularly well.
1: Right. Right. Well, the tax law, it was all tax incentive.
0: It was. The
1: entire growth trajectory.
0: Yep. And so when that changed, it really did change everything. And so, you know, those were but you know, again, it's just like you you learn so much from adversity. And so I did learn about workouts. I had to work with lenders. We had to come up with strategies to try and sort of, you know, keep all the balls up in the air and, you know, try and return as much of the debt service as you could. And so that was a really good experience doing that. You know, and then Tom, Tom and Rick and John started the Bizzuto Group in '88. They spun off, and,
1: and you were at Oxford then. When
0: yeah, I was at Oxford still, then. Yeah, they couldn't yep. take anyone with them. They had they had a sort of hands-off policy for a year. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, at that point, I wasn't really sure. I'd been at Oxford for about five years, and so I wasn't really sure what was going to be next. But Tom and Rick invited me to lunch, and you know, put on the full court press. <laughs> Come join them, (laughs) their fledgling operation. And, you know, it was a point I had to, you know, I had to really think about it because I had a pretty sure thing at Oxford and things were starting to work out and it was getting a little bit easier, but I I knew my job and I wasn't really sure, you know, where what I was gonna do next with them. And and they were convincing, you know, their Tom and Rick. Chickly together can be pretty, pretty convincing. It's it's
1: interesting. Tom told me in our interview
0: Mm -hmm. about
1: that, that movement. And he, I asked him, I said, so, you know, how did you guys operate? He said, well, we took seven deals with us. Mm -hmm. So that was the deal of exit. So we had seven projects that we were working on. So that paid the, the light bill basically during that time. And Obviously, as they were coming close, they needed somebody to manage them once yeah. they were operating. Yes, yeah. so you know, yeah. They, obviously, that's when they came to you. They apparently. needed they
0: needed an opera they needed an operator. Yeah, and and the great thing about that was, you know, it was fun. I knew I knew it was risky, and I was betting on that. But I also felt like if it doesn't work out, I'll figure something else out. I'll be you know, I've gotten a lot of good experience, and I'll. I'll figure something else out if this if this doesn't
1: work. Well, you were happen. eight years in the business at that point.
0: Yeah, it was, was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't, you know, I was I was just in my just, you know, hitting third, I think it was 29. So, but I I felt, you know, I felt like I sure. I felt, you know, I felt prepared. And it was fun because it really was a startup. I mean, we talk about startup businesses, but startup businesses are really fun because you have to do everything and mm-hmm. you you know, you have nine jobs, not one job. And, you know, you do whatever needs to be done. And so for from my perspective, it was just this incredible opportunity to, to learn from from founders, which, you know, today, even our new employees don't have that opportunity. So I, I really learned how to develop properties from John Slidell, you know, because I'd sit in meetings with him for seven hours, and we would go <laughs> through every detail. I mean, it was such a such a detailed developer in every project we did that with. And so I I still today, when I look at a set of plans, I look at them the way that we did, you know, back then. And, you know, Rick Mostyn, we'd be financing deals. And I, you know, I literally learned this stuff, you know, just sitting with him and learned how to run a business because with Tom, because every time your equity partners came to town it was like oh, full yeah. you know it sure. was it full was it crossed. was game time yeah so i think that and then in a startup company you have to do everything i had to hire everyone i had to, i did all the marketing i did all the budgets you just do whatever needs to be done so it it you know you really build your skill set pretty quickly so yeah. you
1: had to set the tone on the operating side of the company basically yep. Yep. you were the, you were the architect of the operating side of the Voodoo, yep. in essence
0: yeah, and we had to decide what we were going to be known for because we had a lot of competition, and we were right. the underdog, you know. Sure. So we had to, you know, decide what, what, you know, what would be what, how, we, how were we going to stand out in the market?
1: What was that Thinking to back to the late '80s, early '90s, who were your biggest competitors? Lincoln Property was big at that time, weren't they? And. Uh... <sighs> And uh, the Texas developers seem to be the yes. most proactive here in that market at the time. Trammell
0: right? Crow right. would have been a big competitor that was before mm-hmm. they went public.
1: Crow to Williger, Michelle, was I recall exactly,
0: yes. exactly before you know before right. they did their before IPO. Avalon Bay and all that. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So it would have been Trammell Crow. There was a company called Caliber. That I
1: recall. Yeah, Do you remember, remember
0: Caliber? That.
1: Sure. And that then was Artery one. was another big company. Artery
0: was another one. Oh, it was the one out of Baltimore. Oh, my gosh. The name is escaping me right now. Shelter? Shelter. Shelter. Yeah. Shelter was four properties. Right. Those were all competitors. Sure. Yeah. So in Lincoln Property Company. Right. On the, on the Jeff,
1: Jeff Franz company.
0: Jeff Franzen. Yep. Yep. Um, so those were, you know, those were some of the competitors that we were. And
1: everything was garden wood at that point. Wood, wood garden, no no vertical, you know, stuff. No it, high
0: rises. Except for the developer
1: of this business park who actually did condominium vertical stuff at that point. Yep. You know
0: No yeah. one was doing any high rise. Yeah. And we were completely suburban, you know, so that's, right.
1: that's it. We never even went
0: into D.C. Yeah. So, and that's, you know, I, we thought that's what we were going to do. But then the fee managed business took us into D.C. and, you know, that's when, we started seeing more development of apartments in, in, in Washington. Yeah, nothing had really been developed, and so we ended up working for ING. I don't remember ING. Yes, Do you remember them? Of course. Yeah, and so Clarion. they, were, yeah, and Clarion Partners, and they mm-hmm. were doing uh, a property called Westbrook Place, which is Twenty Second and N. And I'm not really sure how we got that call, but we did get that call to come and pitch it. For management. No, you know what it was? It was McLean Gardens. That's what it was. McLean Gardens came before Westbrook Place. And yeah, we got a call from Brown to, because Brown had the original advisory. Yeah, Alex Brown sure. had the, they were the, you know the asset advisors, manager. the asset managers for that right. asset. Mm-hmm. And so they were going to change management. And so we had to convince them to give us those 535 apartments and it had retail we'd never done retail it had office we'd never done office and so that's probably where my sales skills were particularly well old but we did take that we did take that asset and we did win it and it took us a long time to win it and and we you know we we crushed it there and that really helped build our dc business and from that you know, we had a really, really good team. What year Plain. was that when
1: you took over the McLean Gardens? How McLean Gardens think?
0: was 1994, 93, 94. So, shortly after the crash. Yeah. The problems. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Uh-huh.
0: yeah. So we took, we took over that asset and, and we had a good experience with it. It was, it was great. And then we got the call on Westbrook Place and, and that, You know, that's where when I said, you know, we always tried to maximize revenue. They were trying to get $2 a square foot for their apartments at Westbrook Place. And no one had broken the $2 square foot barrier yet. And they were bringing this European style of living, like this very Ritz Carlton, you know, beautiful.
1: um, Well, there was a Ritz Carlton. under construction, right at, right around the corner from yep. there at that time.
0: Yep. Right? Yeah, exactly. Literally, it's yeah. Carlton. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And so we wanted that sort of super high, sure, you know, sort of high end quality five star. Um, hotel quality service. a Park Hyatt
1: nearby, and I mean, really high-end hotels. It was.
0: I mean, that was a great neighborhood, and yeah. so we, so we were hired for that, and we, we were in that deal for about ten years. And but that was really the start of us being thought of as sort of a luxury manager. That we were like we had the staff that was trained to be able to deliver that quality of service to people who expected it you know and and that was that really was our start and from there that was sort of our springboard for a lot of other opportunities
1: when did that thought process develop i mean was it that project when you're sitting down with with them and saying you know we want something different did they tell you that that's what they wanted, or was that your idea of coming to them? Saying, they told this is how we're going to do
0: this. Yeah, they told us what they they told us that they wanted the sort of elevated level of service, right. and then we then we sort of crafted a plan to get there. But you have to remember, this is when the World Wide Web was just coming into, right. you know, we were doing a website there. We had sort of an interactive.
1: You know was that I, your first website on a property? It
0: was. And we had sort of an interactive digital experience wow. that was that was just unheard of that no one had done it like this before. And yeah, so we were bringing this whole this whole was new that their company. budget
1: or yours? Oh it
0: was their budget. I was gonna yeah, say it was their budget. And yeah. they wanted
1: the internet experience. They wanted that.
0: Yes. Oh yeah. You know You're they saying. wanted they wanted a very, yeah. you know, a very curated experience for you know the people who would be who would be living so that there. was a learning experience for you I oh, imagine. it was great, yeah, it was great and and we loved it, you know we loved everything about it, and we wanted to do more of it and, you know we 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 loved being able to use technology in a way that we hadn't used before. we loved the urban experience, and it was we sort of hit it at the right time because there were. You know, then there was just more and more and more of that of buildings to start. We had to, to prove it out. We did get the $2 a square foot, I might add. So we did. We were able to do that, which is funny now, right? Because we have apartments that are making, getting $5 uh, a square foot. But, you know, you're always, you are always you know, you're always trying to break through, you know, yeah, there's ceilings. Always
1: barriers. Yeah. So in my conversation with Tom, he spoke about the customer experience, which yeah. you just talked about yeah. at Bizzuto. He was very animated about the customer Base and what the preferences are. He spoke about sanctuary
3: mm-hmm.
1: for your residents. Were you involved in developing this philosophy?
0: Yeah, and I think you know, I, I I think we always felt that way. Tom always believed that the customer was right. He he always came at it from a customer perspective, and he and I were very in sync on that because I had I had been on the front line, so I had just worked with a lot of people who were who were, you know, in need of housing. And so I felt like I had a, you know, a firsthand perspective of where renters are when they're coming in. I mean, you sort of think about it, you know, a housing move is always precipitated by some life change, of
3: course, you yeah. know,
0: either someone's, you know, someone's divorced or you've had a relationship that has ended or you have a job that's starting or,
1: Coming in from out of town. Yeah,
0: you're coming in from out of town or, you know, there's something going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's always a lot of stress associated with change. And so I always felt like if you could diffuse that, you know, and try and make and turn this negative experience into something really positive and to try and find like some way to sort of create create some, you know, some connection with a the customer that it could be a really fun experience. And I loved leasing for that reason, because it was challenging and, and just really enjoyable. You meet so many people and you learn a lot about them. And so Tom and I really believed that, you know, that that our job was to make this, you know, to make people customers for life or friends for life. And to try and treat them, you know, to give them the best possible experience that we could. And so we, 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 we did do that. And the company is sort of, it's been so long now that it just feels like it's bread in the bone, to be honest with you. But this, you know, this relentless focus on the customer. And, and Tom, you know, Tom always said, and I'll never forget this. And I remind, I remind the younger people coming into the company of this all the time, that the best customer you'll ever have is the one you already have. And so retain. you've got to retain. you've got to retain people because they will they will be advocates for life. And I can't tell you how often I run into people who say, Oh, I love Bazudo. I lived in one of your buildings for three years and I hated to leave. Or I'm such a I'm, you know, I'm a flag waver of Bazudo, And it's because of the experience that they've had with our people. And so, you know, our core values, care and concern, like really caring about people. Being creative and trying to create, you know, solve, solve problems, but also to create fun in buildings. Passion, like really caring about what you do. Like when people are passionate about their work, it really shows through. And and perfection. You have to be a perfectionist in this business. This is the Martha Stewart piece of it. Yes. But, but a presentation is everything. And, you know, we always believe that we're inviting people into our home and we want that to look as good as it possibly can look. So, Really very basic core driving values that I think have now they're, now the the teams just take it to whole new heights. Tom actually
1: said that he and Rick and and John spent a long weekend, apparently at a retreat to come mm -hmm. up with those core values, which was, he said, they carry them to today. And this was back in the early nineties when you came up with
0: them. It It was. And, you know, it just, they're so, they're still so good. You know they they really work and stand
1: the test of time.
0: Yeah, they stand the test of time, and they and they work because they're easy. I look at people's core values and I think, how do they remember what they are? But like for ours, it's easy. It's easy to live by our core values, right? Perfection's a little hard. Perfection, right. well, it's hard
3: for some people.
0: <laughs> and, we, and, and and sometimes we have to explain that. We're like, you know, pers- you know, perfection is a moving target, you know, but we want it to be as good as it can possibly be yeah. at that moment in time. Yeah.
1: I loved his you know? analogy. Yeah. He said Michelangelo and uh, Leonardo da Vinci were not uh, perfect, but they certainly came damn close. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's what we it always can be a little better. It drives my husband crazy. But it is it is, you know, this pursuit of trying to make it as good as it can be. And it's the effort that goes into it that I think you get credit for, you know. So
1: So Tom and I also spoke about the growth pattern of the company and and many times the management opportunities have led that growth. Was that often the proactive or reactive with existing clients? Asking if you would go to other markets on their behalf or strategically reaching out to compete for management?
0: Yeah, you know, we've been very fortunate because we've grown, we've grown the company without without an aggressive growth action plan, I guess, if you will. Like we we would map out where we would like the company to be, but it's really been our clients that have taken us to new markets that have given us the ability, that have given us good assets to, to sort of seed. A market, and you know, I always, I've always said, good work begets good work. So Mm -hmm. you do a great job for someone, they're going to want you to do their next project. So you always have to focus on 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 what's in front of you. But Northwestern Mutual Life, for instance, has been a very loyal partner of ours and client of ours for over twenty five years now. But they took us up to North Jersey, and that's how we built up our Northern Jersey portfolio. They gave us the biggest, baddest asset. You know the under construction two towers, seven hundred units. You know with amazing views, and but we knew how to do luxury, and we we said, well, we will just have to learn the market. But we actually, but we know how to do this. We know how to execute on this. And Northwestern then sent us up to Boston, and gave us an asset up there, which seated you know, then we were able to, you know, we said, we want to do an amazing job on that. And so that's how we, we grew our, now we've been in Boston for over a decade. We've been up in the uh, tri-state area for probably 15 years, if not longer, maybe 20. And then, you know, we got a call from just at one of our, one of our beloved asset managers at Heitman, who said, how far west will you go? Will <laughs> you go to Chicago? Oh, yes. And then they gave us just the trophy, you know, the trophy, trophy asset. So the downtown Chicago? Yeah. Yeah, in the loop. And now we had 18 buildings or 20 really? buildings in the loop. Yeah. So that was great. And you know, the same and then we had some false starts. Like we we went down to Atlanta, we went and Atlanta just and we went to Charlotte, but there just wasn't enough there for us. We weren't able to really scale. What we were doing, but then when we went to Florida. We were able to scale. So you know, you learn quickly. And I, I think for us, I think what we learned from that is we have to be super, super uh, diligent about really understanding the growth opportunities and markets. But the, but that all you know that all created the ability for us to grow. And I think the other thing that's been we had a very large client list. A lot of the equity players are the same, but you know, equity partners with a developer, and so we we've met a lot of developers that have been partnered with other equity partners and we continue to work for them. So I think because we had a lot of relationships, we didn't have our eggs all in one basket that like when everyone got busy, we got really busy and we only need a small portion of our clients to be busy in order for us to continue growing. So that's worked out well. You have some of
1: your competitors in the development business that have hired you as a property manager. Oh yeah. And in in construction too. Yeah. Yeah. you know, it's interesting how you have different verticals that may yeah. not necessarily when I was at the saw company, we we financed properties for other retail developers. And some developers said, No, we're not going to talk to you because you're the other side of your house is competing with us on the shopping center. So yeah. they wouldn't talk to us. I don't know if you ever had that circumstance where uh you, you ever get, oh no, we can't hire a Yeah,
0: developers. you know, it it has happened. It has it doesn't happen a lot, but it does happen occasionally. And what we, what we really like is to sort of use one bazoodo and we, we love it when, when we're working for a third party client, we're building for them and also managing for them. Because if we have a lot more influence with our own construction company than we do with another general contractor, mm-hmm. because we can just go down the hall sure. and find them and see if we can like make something happen. Because that relationship between a general contractor and an operator, particularly on new assets, is huge. You know, trying to get properties ready, presentation ready. So yeah, so that that has that has has helped. And you know, Bazudo. The other thing that's been nice about the management company we're now developing in Boston, but we had a decade, decades worth of experience operating there. So that's been very helpful for our development company oh, as sure. we've started to develop assets um, in those markets. Yeah, and the same thing happened in, in, in the Philadelphia market. It's interesting
1: that. Management feeds the development business. I mean, you're ahead of the development, you come behind it. Whereas yeah. other companies like the, the Texas developers would go, oh, we got to find sites and start developing, and then we'll bring the management to the table. So yeah. it's interesting how you
0: guys Yeah, are- we did we we have led with management. Yeah. And you know, and it, you know, one of the things that Tom has taught all of us, but you know, it's one of the biggest, I think, lessons that he's taught me is about managing relationships like he's Tom's a real relationship guy and, and <laughs> your relationships are super important. And we've had developers that have left here mm-hmm. and hired us later. So the, the people move around in this business, but they typically don't leave the business. No. And so you run into the same people, asset managers go to different shops, and then we start working with them. So You know, it's you. You plant a lot of seeds in this business, and you have to be patient. And some take longer to germinate than others. But if you have a, you know, if you plant a big enough garden, it'll bear a lot of fruit at some point.
1: You don't want to burn bridges.
0: No, no, and and you know, and I've seen I've seen us leave money on the table more than taking it off. To be honest with you, but it always pays off. You know because. Long you game. know, if it's a win-lose game, some the person who loses never forgets. You know, it's, a, so. it's an infinite game. Yes, it is. It is, and and people are in it for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I think we see that people, sure. you know, people people spend decades in this in this business. Oh, absolutely. So.
1: so Tom is very proud of the management company, obviously, and he's it's grown so dramatically. Um, The interesting thing about management that I've been told and I've never been involved that some people have said it's not a very profitable, if it's just a standalone management company. So it seems to me that you have to integrate other services with management to make it profitable. Talk about the interrelationship between the different, we talked a little bit about it earlier, but.
0: Yeah. It's, It's a business that requires scale for sure. And. First of all, you have to know how you make money as an organization. And so, you know, it can be a profitable business if you take on the right assets, if you don't turn over your assets a lot. So, for instance, for us to work for uh, merchant builders is is just, you know, that is, a, that is a losing proposition for us because you really need to manage an asset for three or four years to really be able to, you know, maximize to, to, to maximize profit that is at least uh, worth the risk, because there is a lot of risk in the business, even though it, it was always thought of as a low risk business. But it's, you know, there's a lot of ways to get sued in the business, there's a lot of ways, ways to get hurt in the business. And so, you know, it's not it's not without risk. But I think that it's nothing like the hospitality industry. Like when I, when I And with friends who, you know, who operate hotels and I see how company, how hotel brands get paid for their brand and then get paid for, you know, their operations and are locked into very long-term contracts and that are able to pass through a lot of expenses to the owners. It doesn't work that way. And residential. And, And that's, at some point, maybe that will change when people just decide that the juice isn't worth the squeeze and there aren't enough operators out there and so there is the ability to charge more for services when i got into the business we were charging now of course like you said the tax reasons were the all the tax benefits were the reasons people did this and so the fees that were being paid to property managers were probably less of a focus but we would earn 5 6% fees we would get paid for accounting services we get paid for placing insurance we get paid marketing fees, all of those would be within the PL. You'd never get away with that today. The fees are a fraction of what they once were. And the requirements are significantly more. You know, you need to have very strong digital engineers, you need to have analysts, you need to have, you know, you need to have a much broader skill set. And so it's a harder business to make money And I, I would say when I was you know when i got into it you could make a lot more money relatively speaking than you can today but we're also a developer we own real estate and you know if you run your business efficiently and you're in the right markets and you don't you know you don't try and spread yourself too thin you can make it work so as a
1: as a property manager it's a very challenging task so on one side, one time you're, you're walking tenants through and you're trying to sell them on the property. Yeah. At the same time, your cell phone, your phone is ringing and you've got a tenant screaming in your ear about a bathroom that they've got a problem with. How do you teach your managers how to manage these highs and lows during the day and keep that right attitude to do it?
0: I mean, I think it's just it's all in a day's work to be honest with you. I mean, like I said, you know the the you know fortunately people don't call and scream at us unless like something has really gone wrong. And so there are ways for people if people have an issue with their apartment, there's sort of you can just go ahead and submit a work order online, and that goes directly to the service manager, and you can rate your service manager today, and so. We try and develop really strong relationships with our residents. And so when something goes wrong, which inevitably will, we tell them that at some point you're going to need us to come fix something for you. And we'll do it within 24 hours and we'll get it done as quickly as we can. So it's having a really strong maintenance team. But, but that typically doesn't happen concurrently. So, you know, if someone is taking a custo- a potential customer to live in the building, they get 110% of that person's attention. And then there's always someone in the office who can deal with other, other things. But it's a juggling act for sure. And people that love the business love it because it's a juggling act. And people who don't like the business don't like it because it's a juggling <laughs> act. So Every it's, day is different. Every day is different. The day flies by. You spend a lot of time talking to people. It's a job for extroverts. Absolutely. And yeah, and there are times when things go really wrong and that's no fun. And or, you know, we have floods and we have fires and we have weather events and we have, you know, all kinds of things that can happen. Power outages. Power outages. Yeah. But that's where our team tends to really shine because they will, they'll move mountains to try and create a good experience out of a bad, you know, a bad situation. And COVID was no different, you know. We had to put a lot of restrictions in place in our buildings to keep our residents safe. And it was hard fighting with residents to get them to wear masks initially and to, you know, and to try and sort of adapt to a new normal. But they, they, you know, they made, they made the best of it. And we've had residents say to us, you were the best thing that happened to me during COVID because, you know, they were isolated. They couldn't go see their families. They were stuck in their apartments working, you know, and the teams were, you know, doing backflips to try and come up with fun, new things that they Engagement. could do. And yeah, how to keep the residents engaged. Just checking in on them, see how they're doing. And and that went a long way. Residents said, wow, you're the only one checking in on me right now, you know. 70% of our residents live alone, you know, or are single. They may not live alone, but they're single. And so, you know, so COVID was, was a pretty big test.
1: Sure. So... We talked earlier about the culture that you have, and just today, last week, I saw that Pizzuto was named a top workplace by Washington Post. Mm-hmm. Congratulations Thank on that you. for the sixth consecutive year. Talk about how you instill this culture in your employees and keep them motivated. We just talked a little bit about, you know, making it every day, but what what is it about that? What, what, what do you do to keep that spirit?
0: Yeah, to keep the culture alive. Yeah, and we were... I was quite frankly relieved because we were number one last year and we've been on their list for six years, but we'd never been number one. And we were so excited about that. But the problem with being number one is then you either have to stay there or you're going to fall. And so we fell to number two this year, but we'll take it. We're still pretty excited about that. The thing that feels the best about that is that that came from employee surveys. And I think the most important thing is that we really listen, listen to our employees and we try and make sure they have a voice in the organization. And, you know, we've all been fortunate. You know, I think about the fact that I started in this company sort of practically washing dishes, you know, and, you know, I got to the point where I was, you know, making all the decisions and now, you know, very have a lot of influence over what happens here, which which is a huge responsibility and something I, I don't take lightly. I think that that is really exciting for our employees to see that they can be, you know, and a lot of times they'll say, did, did you really lease apartments? Are you, did you really <laughs> start your career leasing apartments? And I said, yeah, I did. And that was one of my favorites. So I, I think we try and stay very close to our employees. We try and, you know, make sure that they, if they leave this organization, they leave more skilled than when they started. We have a real family culture. We, we have the saying here, this is a family taking care of family. And, and a lot of times our residents will say they feel like they're part of the Bazudo family. And when they leave, they're like, I'm leaving my family. So we try and make people feel like, you know, they have a responsibility to each other. We're a very inclusive organization. We've always been very diverse. You know, Tom's always believed And diversity and thought and perspective. And so diversity has been baked in. So it wasn't like, you know, after June of last year, it wasn't sort of this new idea for us. We've been at it for a long time. And uh, we keep... We have a lot of employee-led le- or initiatives. We have a lot of affinity groups. We have Soul, which is our sh- Shades of United leadership for our Black and Brown community. We have VITA for our Latino community. We have Happy for our you know our Asian American Pacific Islander community. We have Lift for our LGBTQ community. We have Women at Fazuto. We have vets at Fazuto. We have we just so, have you- like see, if, if you're you- looking for a place to be, you can find it How do you here. come
1: up with all these? We know.
0: don't even come up with them. Our employees do. So this yeah, is from the grassroots. Yeah. So you always have an executive sponsor. You get a budget. You know, That's we cool. have like a charter. So we That's teach awesome. teach people how to set up steering committees and leaders to do that. So that has been really great. And when we were when we were just faced with the horrors of last summer and just and just witnessing so much social injustice, we had. We had a team of employee advisors that helped us work through it to figure out what we should do, you know, and how we should communicate and what we should be doing.
1: So we we talked about your transition into the CAO role, and you brought on Stephanie Williams, which she you had kind of mentored from the start. Right, talk about her evolution in the company.
0: So Stephanie joined us as a development associate after she completed graduate school. And she was really interested in developing affordable housing. And so that's what she was doing for the company. And I guess it was right around the great financial crisis in 2008 that it just seemed like we were going to be licking our wounds for a while and doing a whole lot of development. And I really like Stephanie. I'd worked with her on a couple of deals that she had um, been developing for Bizudo. And so we we just got together one day and I said, you know, Steph, you're not going to have a lot to do over the next couple of years. And I think it would be a great opportunity for you to broaden your base and learn some new skills. And I really could use somebody to help me and the management company in our advisory services role, which really required some development expertise because we had a big pipeline of assets that were in development in construction or in construction that were going to happen that were already financed before the um, GFC so she jo- she joined that group and ran that group and then was running business development so all of the new business development was going through her and she, you know she's a very skilled developer and so she was actually able to shepherd, A lot of these uh, projects that we were helping developers get off the ground. And and it was a sizable portfolio. So it was several years worth of work. And so that was her sort of her foray into the management business. And she got really good at it really fast and learned a lot. And Stephanie had spent a lot of time on airplanes and trains together. (laughs) which gave us hours to just talk about the business and to talk about strategy and for me to teach her more about what I knew about the business. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then one day, you know, I asked her if she would be interested in taking over at some point, because I said, I'm starting to think that I, you know, I can't do this forever because it's not fair. It's not fair to the company. So I'm I'm really sort of thinking about who who's going to come in behind me. and And she was very, very interested. So that was that was really
1: the start. It's interesting that somebody that came up in development would want to go into the property management side of the business. Yep. But obviously you inspired her.
0: Well, and I think the way she came in was really enjoyable. You know, so she came in on the sort of business development side and she was doing something that she knew. And we had we had just an incredible portfolio of assets that we're going to be opening up. So the it is really fun working on these buildings. they're big and they're sure. beautiful and it's fun working with all the consultants and it's really fun coming up with the you know sort of the master plan and working on all the branding issues so I know she was very good at that and enjoyed it and so i you know I think by the time this opportunity came, the company was really quite large at that point, so her her actual work with the property was just going to be very limited. She really would be managing a very large team of people. And that, you know, you know, she would probably say that was probably one of the biggest challenges, you know, it, just a lot of moving parts, a lot of departments, you know, a lot of people doing a lot of different things and just, you know, getting up to speed on that was going to be her biggest challenge. But but she she had the right head for it and she had the right heart for it. So I think that that, you know, that really positioned her well. And I was there to support her every step of the way. I wasn't gonna let her fail. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So how many how long did you take to train her? Basically, she Canada?
0: and I worked together for gosh nine years.
1: Really? Oh a long time. Yeah,
0: a long time. Oh yeah. So you that's a lot so of you train knew. rides. You yeah.
1: Knew. You knew after
0: Oh, I knew. I knew. Yeah. And I wasn't going to turn it over to anyone. Let me tell you, I, I felt like it was my baby, you know. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to be sure that whoever was going to take it from here was going to do a better job than I did.
1: That's great. That's awesome. So we talked a little bit about it, but we're emerging from the pandemic and it offered unique challenges to landlords of almost every property and owners of every company. Talk about how Bizuto managed through the crisis, both with your tenant customers and with your employees.
0: Yeah. Well, the employees, that was the most challenging part because when the governor ordered us all to go home, our office was really prepared. We had we had started using Zoom the summer before, so it wasn't a new concept for us to do video conferencing. And everyone already had laptops and you know we already had a fairly flexible work environment. And so we were ready to go. But the 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 properties couldn't close and we had to keep up and running and our employees became essential employees and they didn't know they were essential employees when they took these (laughs) jobs but all of a sudden they found that they were essential and of course essential employees were really you know they were you know they were closest to the potential threat of, Of of, of the virus and so The first thing we wanted to do was to protect them. And we had to have some flexibility because a lot of them had children. All of a sudden, their children are home from school. Our daycares were closing. And so it just required a tremendous amount of juggling and really understanding what people's challenges were and trying to to work around them. And then trying to create safe environments for our concierge, our service managers, so they would not be exposed uh, to undue risk. And it took a lot of feedback. We set up a site sentiment task force of leaders who were really sort of representing the folks in the field to, to help us make sure that we really understood how people were feeling. But, you know, I think it was a lot of listening and putting and really putting them first to the degree that we could and keeping them out of harm's way. And, you know, we did have, of course we had employees who got COVID and we don't know where they got COVID, but it wasn't, you know, given the fact that we have what, 2,800 employees in this company, it wasn't, we didn't have like COVID spread through a property or anything like that. So, so that was important. We knew we had to start with our employees because our employees were going to have to take care of our customers. So it was a tremendous amount of communication and communication to our residents and You know, just asking for our residents for some grace because we didn't want our employees to feel like they were having to police people in elevators and, you know, masks and giving people distance. And it was so new for so many people who were so stressed out because we didn't know how long this was going to last. And so we tried to keep it fun and, uh, you know, recognize people for just extraordinary efforts. But I think the thing that, quite honestly, that was really stressful wasn't even so much the COVID piece of it because we were. We'd sort of figured out what we had to do. But the, you know, people were moving out and not moving in in a lot of our markets, like in the urban centers. And that was tremendously stressful for the teams who are used to high performing. The cities, New York City, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, sure. Chicago, were just being emptied out. And DC. And that was terrifying. Yeah, yeah DC was one of the worst. So that, I think, was probably as stressful. And we just tried to say, guys, you know what? You, you can't control this. All we can do is the best job that we can. Yeah. But, yeah, they
1: did a lot with virtual
0: tours and sure. you know, lots and lots of creativity, good use of technology.
1: It uh, had dramatic effects on the apartment market, as we just talked about. Yeah. And so we couldn't necessarily predict it. unusual inflation and in building materials, record low interest rates with government subsidizing rents and income. We never predicted any of that did that require you to pivot your strategies along the way?
0: yeah well I'll tell you what's been what's been challenging is the rental assistance program yeah. you know that first of all the government's never issued you know broad, Rental assistance. What the government did really that really helped us was the, the stimulus checks, right? Whether you needed them or not, and the the pretty healthy uninsurance benefits, the additional benefits, the supplemental, because the rent collections were were generally pretty strong. But there was a percentage, a very small percentage of renters who weren't paying at all, and that was very challenging. And when the the two stimulus bills that effectively make up the 50 billion dollars of rental assistance came out. That money all went to the states and the states sent it to all the public housing authorities who were not prepared, who had no systems in place, who didn't have enough people mm-hmm. to really distribute that money. So we're working our way through hundreds of different, you oh. know, different programs right now. And <laughs> that's just sort of on top of everything else that they're trying to do. So get these are all
1: the affordable units you have,
0: probably. Not affordable because the affordable, you know, other than the fact that the the Public housing authorities were having a hard time getting money to them. We knew we were going to get paid. Right. So it was really more of a strategy of like, how do we, how do we keep the lights on while we're waiting for this money? But there, it was certain that we were going to get that money. That mm-hmm. the thing that's hard are the eviction moratoriums. Just, we had rent renters who just hadn't paid rent a year, you know, and, uh, and you know, it's been
1: lifted now. No. Those, Still
0: haven't. Yeah. I mean, they're supposed to be lifted July 30th, but, You know, they may be extended again. They've been extended several times. There is enough money in the system to be able to bring people current for the most part. And it just, you know, it's going to take a long time. The money is dripping in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so that was just yet another sort of wrinkle in all of this. But, you know, but the markets recover so quickly. It's just remarkable to us that we find ourselves... Now, in a position where we can start moving rents back up again. Well,
1: it's interesting. Tom talked a little bit about the oversupply. Mm. And uh, it seems like Class A, particularly, the hop end of just right before the pandemic, there were just a lot of units delivered, Yes, primarily in yeah. urban markets. Yeah. And then, as you said, everyone just left the cities. Yeah. And so it just reverse migration outside the cities for young people that either went back to their homes or they could work remotely and they didn't want to have to sit there in a small apartment. Yeah. You know,
0: so renting, you know, renting apartments and all kinds of exotic or, you know, renting VRBOs or Airbnbs and exotic places and saying, you know, I'm going to live in Aspen for the winter or I'm going to live someplace else. I'm going to live on a beach.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah,
0: But now they have to come back to work. So sure. now they're coming back in droves.
1: Yeah, but you had also, as we talked about, the, the cost increases. So it seems like it's a real squeeze right now in developing apartment buildings, it, it especially is. at the top end of the market. Yeah, it is. Uh, the
0: material increases have been have been extraordinarily high. And in some cases, you know, we'll, we'll certainly delay projects or put projects on pause until... You know, we see where the, where these increases are going to shake out, and, and and there are all kinds of supply chain issues right now right. as well. You can't get can't get anything, can't get furniture, can't get appliances. You know, you can't get a lot of things that you need to finish off communities. So I think that we will experience some some delays, and we'll you know we'll have to see. You know, the low interest rates have been helpful, but when lumber is up four hundred percent, that's that's really hard. to It's hard to get over that.
1: Yeah. Although what percentage of your projects are, are wood stick built and what, you know, is now concrete at this point?
0: Well, is they just, all have a lot of wood in them.
1: Yeah, well, that's
0: <laughs> And true. it's wood and metal, too. I mean, a lot of the metals have been oh, problematic yeah. as well. Sure. So there's still so much money in the market. That's yeah. the thing. There's so much equity out so there. So
1: inflation just continues to. <sighs>
0: yeah.
1: Take off
0: now. We could use some inflation on the rent side. That could yeah. be helpful
1: to us. Uh, you know, that, that's been, inevitable, probably. Yeah.
0: And in our, you know, our renters are pretty well healed, and so right. they can all handle a rent increase. They don't want one. But they could take
1: one. So to retain existing and attract new tenants, landlords have had to up their game mm-hmm. in amenities and services to the point of being like a full service hotel in some cases, especially in the high end market you serve you see a tipping point where tenants won't pay up for amenities? what services are critical today that you you believe that make a big difference for tenants? yeah
0: well it's interesting. so we've had these sort of amenity wars for at least a decade if not more now and it's just that it's always the bar is always being raised. I, I, I think this last round where you would have 25,000 square feet of amenity space in a building. <laughs> Just sort of seem to be like okay, we're going to stop there. I, I'm not seeing a lot of a lot of new stuff. You know, I think what renters are going to want coming out of you know in this new world order that we're all going to be in. And I sort of am calling it post Labor Day because we're still trying to everyone's still trying to figure figure this out. But I think flexibility is going to be a big amenity. And that'll be something that owners are going to have to, and, and operators will have to figure what out. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, today you don't have a lot of flexibility. You rent an apartment and, you know, you're tied and you're, you're, you're committed for a year, yeah. a year, yeah, you're committed for a year. But, you know, that might even be too much for people, you know, they might want more flexibility. So I think flexibility is going to be something I think, and, you know, in a post-COVID world, we're going to see a lot more people actually living in our buildings. They're going to be choosing buildings because they are working home, at home half the time. And so they they really are there all the time. They're yeah. traveling less. Sure. And so, you know, sort of the vibe of the place is going to be really important to them. And do they have a place to work in, in their apartment and in the amenity in area? The yeah. So I think that that will be important. You know, retail has always been really important. And retail has taken a beating, so it'll be important to see like how the outside environment. That's a big piece of it for renters. You know, the my daughter lives in Adams Morgan, and she considers like the block she lives on part of her amenity because she can yeah. you know go out her front door and go to the tent, go to have a cup of coffee. So so that that will be that will be important. But I think sir, I think service is you know like home has taken on a whole new meaning. Yeah. And again nice. it's like who, you know, who's greeting you at the front door? Does everyone know your name? Do they know your dog's name? You know, do you have a relationship with the people in your building? Sure. You know, a lot of times our teams will be, you know, at least initially the only people that our new runner knows, you know, until mm-hmm. they've sort of settled into a job or whatever. So, we think we're we're well situated in a post-COVID world because We already are working to create sanctuary for our customers. We want them to feel so good when they walk in the front door. So, and we think that probably has heightened importance.
1: I went to uh, I toured City Ridge last week. Oh,
0: did you?
3: Yeah.
1: And you know, they're. I think they're going to start renting in January or February Mm -hmm. next year. Mm -hmm. And I think you guys are managing. We are. Mm -hmm. Some of them, not all of them. And you talk about amenities. I would argue that may be the most amenitized property in the yeah. fall of Washington, oh, yeah. D.C. <laughs> yeah,
0: And it's just on a Wegmans, you know, it's which incredible. to me it would be the best amenity. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. You
1: know, the question is, you know, was that investment worth it? And it'll be interesting to see that they get the rents they're talking about because you mentioned five a foot. That's probably what they're looking yeah. for there. yeah.
3: I hope they do
0: because that'll be great for the market. <laughs> I hope we were able to do that for them, but you know, it's also a very big project and oh, six
1: hundred and fifty yeah, units.
0: so you can spread that out, you know, over you know over a lot of units. the The amenities are are expensive, but the reason why they, you know, we kept seeing more and more and more is sort of as a percentage of the overall spend. It, you know, it's it's not as much, so it's easy to it's easy to grow that piece of it. And it's what you see, right? So there does seem to be a tremendous value in terms of, you know. Well, it's concentrated yeah. right there. Everything's yeah.
2: right there.
1: Yep. So Along that theme, how was Cathedral Commons done? Is it, has it held its own as far as, you know, during the COVID and all yeah, that? Yeah,
0: you know, I'll, I'll tell you, Cathedral and we have several other buildings that suffered from when the students went home. Mm. Because we have we house a lot of students. We house a lot of graduate students and AU, law students and your, yeah, uh, yeah, AU. And you know, we're down by GW or it right. Ge- could be Georgetown Law School. And those kids left. And the international students left. And we house a lot of international students, even up at Baltimore and Hopkins and places like that. So, so properties that housed a lot of students really did not fare well. Properties that housed really high income renters did not do as well or renters that had just had a touchdown space here. And then they have mm-hmm. you know, sure. a couple of other places they live. That was an easy thing for them to give up. And then, and then sort of the short stay units, you know, that were used by travelers and business travelers, that business dried up really quickly. And so properties that had a concentration of those units. Really it's did interesting.
1: Well. There's a, there could be a, when you say flexibility, you give too much flexibility, it can be an unprofitable asset that's, real quick. It could, right? it could,
0: right? Because you don't have any control. I mean, that's the thing. You want some certainty. Like even when you compare, you know, multifamily to the office market, you know, a, you know, a lot of you hear a lot of stories about owners of office buildings who said, you know, my tenants are paying their rent. They may not be there, but even we paid our rent every month here because we're tied into a long-term lease. And uh, yeah, so, you know, we're, we're churning every, every year. But I think renters are going to be looking, if you've noticed, like the airlines, they are all changing their policies on making changes now. And yeah.
1: Well, the um, hotelization has been going on a long time. Yeah. And so the business model is changing from that standpoint. And, you know, it's the Airbnb mark, mm-hmm. the whole the RBO you mentioned. So all that, you know, that's the thought process people have today. Why stay somewhere a real long time? I can always move and go and want that flexibility. So
0: Yeah, the nomadic lifestyle. How do you manage around
1: that? In my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong, the customer experience, and this is not just for apartments, but for retail, Mm -hmm. for office, and hotels, all the product types of real estate, to me, is the most important thing going forward. Yeah. Would you agree with that?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And this notion that, I can live here hassle-free. You know, everything is taken care of for me. I mean, one of the things that's interesting, and now my kids are runners, so I'm able to actually see it through their eyes. And and they're girls. I have two daughters, so, you know, this might be them. But the the care in which they decorate and fit out their own space really takes months. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, you know, they're, they're and this is, because of Instagram and because of Pinterest and because of Etsy and because of all these little cottage businesses where, you know, this creation of your own place, your home is so important. And it might take you four or five months or six months to get your apartment looking perfect. You don't want to turn around and leave it after six months. So I think there's this sort of investment in the nest, you know, that's really different. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That thought process getting to millennials a little bit because that's who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. How is, you know, the transition thing This it's interesting. I have uh, two sons and they're in their mid thirties mm-hmm. or one's in early thirties. And the younger one just bought a home. He lived in Brooklyn. So he moved from Brooklyn to upstate New York, mm. not where you are. He's yeah. on the far East end of the state. He's up right in the Connecticut line in a rural Five bedroom home, and he and his girlfriend bought a home, moving from Brooklyn. And it's like, wow, he's 31 years old and he's planting roots. Yeah. What's what's this thought process here? What
0: well I think some people will do that, but I don't know, you hear a lot of, of course, anecdotal stories, but it but you hear a lot of them about. How difficult it is to even buy a home today. Yes. And so if you're trying to buy something in D.C., for instance, around AU Park oh, or yeah, someplace but. like that, I mean, there'll be 20 contracts on one house. And, and you you hear about couples or people who are, you know, they tried 18 times, 24 times before they finally got it. And they had to, oh, you know, they had to go whatever, 20 percent over asking price or that sort of thing. That experience has to be really more, you know, that has to be so stressful. And I, I think for now, millennials may just have to shelve their housing plans for a while until there's some stock because it's a very expensive, and you know, the rates are really low, but they're they're just paying more. I mean, that the cost of for sale housing is really going up quickly. So as operators, we're going to have to think about what they're going to need and how we make that experience, you know. They might move to larger units. We did have a lot of a lot of residents that moved up. You know, they got out of the one bedroom, and they took a two bedroom, and yeah. so they decided that if they're going to be in an apartment for a while, they want to be in a different apartment. So
1: another surge in demand that's interesting is the single family rental rental business. It's yeah. just exploded over the last. And I just heard a podcast about it. Yeah, and they talk about the tech. The technology has really driven it. If it mm-hmm. weren't for technology, you couldn't accomplish you know, owning 5,000 single-family homes right. and trying to manage
2: them. Yeah.
1: you understand the management business. Yeah. Has Vazuto even given any thought to getting into that business at all? Out of curiosity. We
0: thought about it, but we I, I don't think it's something that we'll do. Because you do need, it is a business that needs scale. And then you have totally different operations because it's scattered, right? Right. So you have houses right. all over the place. And so you need to have, like, mobile units going, you know, yeah. you, you have people in trucks and, You know, people have to be on their own. People still want to see the real estate and you need to have some touch. So there is, you know, you can use lockboxes or technology to be able to access, but there still needs to be some some interaction. So I think that the operators that'll do that well will will have to have a whole platform that will look very different. Than what we do, but certainly it is something that has caught the eye of investors. Well, people
1: rent homes uh, sight unseen, right? So they won't even go and see the real estate; they'll yeah. just rent it.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, if they're desperate to do that, yeah, they'll do that. And people rent apartments sight unseen too. I mean, they still do that today. But the technology is there, and the real question is just how you know how much inventory gets out there. You know, but I I think for millennials, it's a really nice a nice option if you can get the right product in the right place because mm-hmm. they're particular.
1: Sure. So Bazudo was in the in the home building business for a while. Are they still yeah. actively doing that? Yeah, we still yeah,
0: we still we're, we're doing it at Trevor chase Lake. A Ritz-Carlton branded condo will be, we're just opening that up for sales now. And uh, we just sold out of our two projects. In
1: do you Canapolis. do your own sales marketing? for uh, knows, how?
0: Hire No, we for have that? a third party. We did have our own sales operation when we had a larger uh, building operation. But in the last few projects, we've been using third party
1: sales operations. But we've been building our own product. Mm-hmm. So Interesting. Yeah. So when you say building, you do the construction and the development? Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. So let's now shift to your personal situation now a little bit. In addition to a le- uh, leading role at Bazudo, you've taken on outside responsibilities, yeah. including becoming chair of the NMHC DNI initiative. Yep, which you're still doing that now.
0: Well, I'm an officer, so I'm on the ladder, the officer ladder NMHC. Okay. Yeah. So I'm two years in to what effectively is a tenure. Tenure
1: commitment, and of course, you just took on the chairmanship of ULI Washington, which yeah. is a big job.
0: Yep, yes, um, it is. Your
1: former colleague Tom or John John Slidell did it for two years. So yeah, what was the, what was the motivation to do that?
0: Yeah, well, you know, it does you know sort of go back to a life of service to some degree. I mean, my parents volunteered for everything, so I, as I grew up, you know, my father. Did a lot of volunteer work, volunteered in the community, volunteered at our church. My mother did the same. And and at Bazudo, Tom Bazudo is, is sort of a, a great corporate citizen. And he has chaired more boards than I could count at this point. But he was chair of the home builders, he was chair of the National Multi Housing Council. He's you know was chair of the Baltimore Science Center and just countless, you
1: know. He said the granddaddy of them all is what he he's doing really
0: now. He do, really did set the tone, but he always did say, and and I absolutely agree with him, and that you have a responsibility to give back to the community. You have a responsibility to give back to the industry, and you know we've all been very fortunate. We've been fortunate, and you know in our business, our business has prospered. So we, you know, we have I'm, I have more than I would have ever dreamed of in a million years, and I feel a big responsibility to be able to give back. I mean, I'm chair of the board of Victory Housing, which builds affordable housing for seniors. I feel really great about that work. And I've done a lot of work with the University of Maryland over the years on their, in their real estate program. And NMHC has been, I've been you know involved in that organization for a long time, joined the latter two years ago. And ULI is, you know, so much of what we do at ULI, I'm, a, I'm on a product council, but you know, so much of what we do at ULI is local, right? You know, we have, we're the third largest, third largest district council in the country, and so i I started off as chair. I started off as actually chair of the Women's Leadership Initiative. I was on the steering committee, and then moved my way up and ran that. And then they asked me to be chair of Mission Advancement, which puts you on the ladder. And I did talk to John Slidell and Bob Young and Tob and Yolanda and others, Jamie Weinbaum, about the chair role because it's a big district council. Yes. And ULI is a volunteer organization, yes, as you well know. Yeah. But, you know, every everything you do somehow relates to your work. And so I find that Every, everything that I do outside the company informs what I do inside the company and yes does it take a lot of time it does does it um, create crazy schedule conflicts it does <laughs> does it cut into my personal time absolutely but I just feel like a I have a responsibility to do it b I really enjoy it and three it just I just keep learning from it so and i and I feel like. You know, I've watched people do this in my lifetime and, you know, I I need to set an example for other people in this company. There are a lot of people at Vizuto that are involved in ULI as well. So, yeah, so it's, you know... ULI, the, the ULI role is a little bit more daunting to NMHC just because the, the responsibilities are a little bit different. But there's just a lot of good people to learn from, too. I mean, you've been tremendously involved in ULI over for the 20 years. 20 plus years. Yeah, and people do it because they love it. Yeah. And uh,
1: I will say that it's been by far the best volunteer thing I've ever been involved in. Yeah. It's the It's the motivation for doing this, actually. Yeah. Actually. Yeah, which is which Staying is forward.
0: yeah, it's it is it is important and you know incredibly gratifying. And and the nice thing about being involved in local district councils is that the work really is centered on where you are. So we're, you know, I live in live in the Washington area and most of our business is in the Washington area. So, you know, so I get different things out of being my association with ULI than I would National Multi Housing Council, which is really, you know, much more on a national platform focusing on advocacy efforts for industry. So I have the opportunity to go, you know, lobby with the government affairs people on Capitol Hill. We'll never do that at ULI because ULI doesn't do that. You know, so it's a very different, right. you know, we we create impact. And so the functions are really different, but there's so much crossover between the memberships. And so Yeah, it's you know. it's it's you know, the thing I love about
1: ULI is it, it doesn't advocate policy. It's mm-hmm. it's really best practices in performance and development and operating real estate. Yeah. And and it's also a think tank. So people think about what they're doing. They don't just do, they think about it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is important.
0: Yeah, and it's where you get your education exactly. as a young as a young professional. You know, it it really does. You think about you, you think about the opportunity. You know, to join young leaders, for instance, right. young leaders to be part of the mentorship program.
1: Which is, you know, that's my passion,
0: which is phenomenal. You know, and and to start building a network. I mean, I one of the things I love about all this all this volunteer work that I've done over the years. Is, is the network you build. You Absolutely. know, I, you just create these friendships with people that feel, you know, that feel lifelong and they enhance your lives. So, yeah, I tend to get a little overcommitted.
4: <laughs> yes. And then I
0: str- it's a little stressful at times, but then I just, it doesn't, it's not going to last forever. And, you know, I sort of had to map out my commitments over the next five to yeah, 10 people years. People look
1: to you and you're a woman leader and there aren't many of us Uh, of any of the women leaders in real estate?
0: And there's and the only way we're going to have more is if women just sort of take you know take a you know step up and take these roles. I mean NMH you know NMHC has been around for forty years, and I will have been the third female chair. That's not a lot. There no. have been a lot of chairs, so there have been twenty chairs, and I will have been the third. By the time I'm up there, there will have been like twenty-five chairs, and I will have been the third female. And at ULI Washington, I will have been the second female chair. So you got to step up and do this stuff if you have the opportunity. And you know, there's a lot of people to help along the way.
1: Well, you so. <laughs> you set the you you set the role. I mean, you were one of the first heads of a property management company, probably. Yeah. In the country, as a woman, I imagine. So uh, yeah, there
0: weren't there were a few of us, but not a lot of us.
1: Yeah, yeah. Back in the late eighties, it was pretty rare. Yeah, so
0: yeah. <laughs> but you know, the funny thing about about that, and people always say, "Oh, how did it feel being like the only woman at the table and the only woman in a company?" And at with Bazudo like. It, it just like everyone. It was really about what you were doing, and it was like everyone. Everyone was too busy worrying about the business and to think about you know sort of the you know the politics of the office. And we were never one of those companies where you know you felt excluded because it was a family company. People were really focused on their kids and their that sort of thing. So I never felt I never felt that at the zoo, even though I was often the only woman at the table. I never felt like I didn't belong there and I never felt uncomfortable and in the development business you know you go to development meetings and I would be the only woman at the table but I just felt like I knew the players and so it didn't feel
1: uncomfortable well, for me. you know Tom is very collaborative yeah. as is as is John yeah. I work, and, and I know and Rick. Rick I know yeah. Rick too I mean I, believe me I worked with Rick on trying to close deals and we we came that close. Several several times, but never. I never actually closed a deal with the dude, unfortunately. unfortunately. I Rick's worked tough He's
0: a tough customer. <laughs>
1: he was. I lost a deal by an eighth. I'll yeah. never forget it. On a loan on a on Abbotts on Grove.
0: Oh my gosh! Deal. Yes, I remember that. I remember that project so well in Colombia.
1: Richard Bowles was the
0: project manager. Yeah. Well, and I was gonna say the developers too were were great, you know, great to work with. And Richard Perlmutter was here, you know. Of course, I'm Richard is was a life, you know, lifelong ULI and still, you know, still on our governance committee. And so they're also familiar, you know, they feel like such familiar people to me. So mm-hmm. I but I, I also am acutely aware that, that my experience has been unique and that there are many women who have had very different experiences. And those battles are really tough to fight. And sometimes they're not worth fighting. You just have to find a different, you know, you have to fi- find a different environment where you will be valued. But they do exist. And I think there's a lot more sort of awareness to it today. But I feel, you know, very fortunate that I... I had the ability to grow in this business. And a lot of women here at Basuto have had had the opportunity to grow. Gender is not an issue. You know, gender diversity is not an issue, period, in this company. But I think you have to be intentional about that.
1: You know? Yeah, you just can't do it, you know, casually. It has to be thought about, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When you hire people, what characteristics do you look? For?
0: Seek. Well, we look for heart, you know, when we're well, with our core values with, you know, care and concern is your number one core value, you got to hire for heart, you got to hire people who are naturally empathetic, naturally compassionate, because you can't teach them. I mean, you'll just never teach someone to care. So that's where we start with that. We want people who are creative thinkers, who are, you know, who are confident enough to stand up, for themselves you know you have to they have to advocate for yourself in an organization we want people who are passionate you know so it always comes back to our core values and and who have a really high quality you know who set, who set a, a very set their personal bar very high and a very high bar for their work because that's the only way you can you know have like a super high performing company and people have to really care about producing good work.
1: You feel better about hiring somebody and teaching them the Basuto way from the get, from the start, or do you look for, you know, people that are experienced and et cetera out there? Does it matter?
0: No, we have a you know, we have a really big internship program before COVID. I think we had our highest every 90 interns one summer and we'll try and hire as many of those back. And we, it would not be unusual for us to hire 50 of them back. And our, one of our developers right now started off as an intern. A lot of people in this company started off as interns. So we look for the raw talent and we look for the, you know the values, the sort of comparable value system, and then we'll know they've got the right stuff to be successful. The re- I mean, we're not yeah. this is not brain surgery, you know, we can yeah. this can be taught, you know, all of this can
1: be taught. Right. Well, that's so. what Tom said. You always said, he said in his discussion with me, he said, We look for people that, that you know are good people mm-hmm. first, yep. we don't look for the smartest guy in the room or the smartest woman in the room. Yeah, we made mistakes there, not you know, you can't teach good heart to people. You can, yeah. you can teach quantity, you know, quantitative things. You can teach uh, business things, but you can't teach.
0: You can't teach people personal. to be nice, you know? no. I mean, you just, you just can't, you just can. And so, yeah, we're, we're a big, we're a big believer in that, that people, and we've seen it, you know, we've seen how people can grow and we just look for people who, you know, have the right stuff to be successful That's and that are flexible.
1: So, you talked about your your giving back and work. Talk a little bit about your family and life priorities a little bit
0: yeah well i I have two daughters that are now twenty five and twenty four My oldest will be twenty six in the fall, and you know they've they've just been such a huge part of my life and they know Bazuuto so well because they've been dragged around to properties and sure. they Interned at Bazuto, and so Bazuto's been. I, you know, I thought it was really important for them to really understand what we did. And my husband's a developer, and so he would drag them to projects. And they, you know, they both are. So you they're know, in real estate. They're not in real estate. My daughter, my uh, oldest daughter, is a. She's a research analyst, and she's very involved in like the digital marketing space. Mm-hmm. I. I, you know, I I think that she'll probably, you know, continue on that. But I, but who knows? She's young. She's 25 years old. Sure. Where she'll go. She'll probably go off to graduate school. And my youngest is a singer-songwriter down in Nashville. Wow. Yeah. And she, she took a, a totally different path. She ended up going to college in Scotland, in Edinburgh, Scotland. And she had always been very interested in music. You know, sort of a more of a quiet person, a little bit of an introvert. And um, started writing music in high school and now is, yeah, is a singer songwriter. She's, you know, you have to supplement that she's an artist. So she's got a day job and she does, she does a lot of things to patch it all together. But, but she is, you know, I would expect her to, you know, do something with that. She's had a lot, she's had a good run, even though she's been, she's been in Nashville, mostly during COVID, but she's had a lot of good encouragement there. So yeah. So they're they're great. And we, as a family, we're very tight knit. We spend a lot of time together. We spend a lot of time in the outdoors and we, our kids grew up hiking and skiing and, you know, just doing a lot. We have a big network. We, I never had family here and my husband's an only child. And so we've always had a very large network of friends you and their siblings. kids. Not here. I've got yeah. two siblings, but they but they uh, live in other Probably parts more. of the country. Yeah. So, yeah, so we've, you know, family first has always been, always been, you know, our That's priority. Great. But we've also not hidden behind our work. You know, we thought it was just important for our kids to really understand that sure. in order to be successful, you have to make sacrifices. And there are times when I've had to work on vacations, but, mm-hmm. you know we've, we've made it all work. There are times they had to do homework on vacations. Of course. So I think they, they have a really strong work ethic that's
3: and, great. Uh, and
0: they've, they've had a good life. So yeah, that's awesome. And we have dogs and I think dogs are really are a, ness, a, a requirement to, <laughs> to, for, for busy, stressful people.
1: Well, to come home, it's an interesting, there's a, and I'll share it with you. I've shared it on the previous, it's a, Multidisciplinary speech by Peter Kaufman, and he talks about the dog next door, or the, the, the two dogs are talking across the fence, and he says, "Here's the secret, you know. So for five minutes, you and when your when your master comes home, you just give them every all that attention, <laughs> and just you know wag your tail." For five, all it takes for five minutes, and then you can go off, and you can sit, and you're you, they take care. And you're care done. That's so
0: true, <laughs> though. It's just the it's the thing that takes the edge off the day. Yeah. Um, so human great,
1: beings behave that way. Yeah. You know. Would be awesome. So people
0: it? always say, "I wish I could be the, I, I wish you would be the man my dog wants me to be, or, exactly. you know, or so the woman you my
1: dog wants me property to property be." you could teach property managers when somebody comes in to be like the dog that's the, 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 the master's coming home. You know
0: that we have so many dogs. We have so <laughs> many dogs in our properties. we have like twenty on average. Twenty percent of our really? residents have dogs, and dogs are the great equalizer. You know, uh-huh. it's just we always have a, a jar of dog treats at every concierge stable yeah. and. People bring their dogs and concierge know all the dogs name and the the teams know the dogs and they are great connectors of, you know, they just really are, oh, and I'm, I'm guilty. I have a new, I have one too, (laughs) I have a yellow lab named Fred who came to us last summer. But yeah, I, I just find like, that's, you know, it's just a great, a great gift in life. You know, you just, you know, you look into your dog's eyes at the end of the day and you realize like, they don't really care. (laughs) That's right. So, but yeah, I, you know, I think women ask me and men ask me all the time about work-life balance and, you know, and I said, I, I, I just don't think that's, that's what we're striving for. I think we want some harmony. I think we want some integration, but, but life isn't balanced. You know, there's going to be times where you're not going to have it. And, and so just look for some harmony and if you are happy and you feel good and you feel like you're. You know, do you feel like you're doing well by your family or your relationships or whatever your other responsibilities are? Then just give yourself. A
1: and time. if you have good health.
0: And if you have good health. Yeah. Which is so important. It, it it absolutely is. Yeah, it absolutely is. And you have to take good care of yourself, you know, because yeah. you're only going to be, you know, you can only be effective if you're strong, if you're mentally strong, if you're physically strong. And so you have to take care of yourself.
3: Exactly.
1: So... What were your biggest wins, losses, and most surprising events in your career?
0: Mm, Boy, that's that's a really good question.
1: Start with wins. What was the biggest win that you can remember? I mean, something that just, you know, really was you felt really strongly about.
0: I you know, I I think one of the things that I was really proud of. Was when our company was named Property Management Company of the Year, because it just felt. This is by
1: the NHG. This
0: was by the NA, the NAHB, National Association of Home Builders, Home Builders and yeah. and we've won it several times since. But the first time we won it, I felt like we like we had arrived. You know, I just felt like it legitimized us as a player. What year was that? you know? Oh gosh, that had to be maybe time around 2000. Mm-hmm. It, it was at least 20 years ago. It's well over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. We weren't as big and, you know, we weren't a national company. But that felt really... What were the criteria? That felt remember. really good to me. Oh, gosh. You had... You know, I'm trying to remember what the criteria was now. You know you, you know, you basically had to be a really strong operator and a really strong employer. And you had to have recommendations from, you know, your clients and... Mm-hmm. You know, you had debt there's a lot of you know feedback that was sure. required as part of it. So that that so felt was more really
1: good to me. It was more it wasn't as much metrics as what you reputation. Yeah, that it was, was
0: it was very, very much reputation. And you know, and and the management company for seven years now has 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 been number one in the country for reputation management. Oh, that's and and reputation for us has always been you know, that's been, you know, something you protect with your life. You know it's been, it's been our, probably critical. the most important asset that we have. So like, you know, getting those, that kind of recognition felt really, really good.
1: And probably. what about the biggest loss? Let's go the other direction. Yeah. Oh boy. Hardest thing that you had to deal with.
0: You know, I've been very fortunate in my career. The hardest, probably the hardest thing was losing my dad. That was probably, you know, I think out of, Everything that's happened in my life, that was the worst. That was probably, you know, that was probably my lowest moment. So it was just. He was your soulmate. He was just such a good friend. He was everything to me. So, so that, you know, that happened and it, well, let me see. It happened about five years ago, five or six years ago. Yeah. So I was, yeah, I I was, you know, I was in my fifties. So. Yeah. But that's just, you know, losing a parent any time in your life. And then I lost my mom six months later. So I think that year, that year was, you know, was just really difficult, you know, because I just had to sort of find, just had to sort of find the strength. I had a lot going on in my life, too. I mean, we had a lot of balls up in the air, like sure. I said, and, you know, those kinds of schedules. There's no room for for a lot of grieving, and so I, you had I to needed to reset some
1: things?
0: Yeah, I time? just I just needed some I needed some time to breathe and to try and sort of recalibrate a little bit. It was just a very hard personal time, but you know it. You know, a lot of people in our company lose their parents, and I feel so equipped to help them with it. You know, so so I think that that was. I've been, I you know, I haven't had any major rational blows, which I'm so
1: grateful for, That's great.
0: but it's the personal things that really derail you, you yes. know? So,
1: so, you know, I think that those are And how best. about surprises, things that, oh my God, what happened? You know, good <laughs> well, or this, bad.
0: this company has been such a surprise. Like I, who knew, you know, I, you know, we laugh about it sometimes so we're like, God, we're national. How did that happen? You know, we, we've, when you when you start with a company as, you know, as a, when when you're right from the beginning as a startup, you know, I, like Tom will always say he, he has founder syndrome and I get it because you, you know, it's like the little engine that could, like, we just sometimes can't believe that, that we are where we are and we're so grateful and we know it took a lot of work and it took a lot of work and a lot of people and it took a little luck and some good timing and. All of those things. But we do sometimes just shake our heads and say, who would have thunk it? We just never thought we'd be here. Yeah.
1: So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today?
0: I, well, and I, I give that advice to a lot of 25-year-olds, including <laughs> my daughter. daughter. Yeah. And that's just to take some chances in life. You know, yeah. don't, don't be afraid of failing. You know, just take more risk. Measure it if you want to, quantify it if you want to, but don't be afraid to, don't be afraid to to get out there, to, to get out in that limb. You know, I had a, I had a mentor who once said to me, you know, Julie, don't be afraid to go out on a limb because that's where the best fruit is. Mm-hmm. And it's really true. Like when you really stretch and you do something that you never thought you could do, it's so satisfying. And so I really push 25 year olds and I wish I you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. Now it worked out for me, but it could have easily not worked out for me as well. So, you know, to be a little bit more intentional, I don't think you need to, you know, I don't think you need to plan out your life, but I think you should be really thoughtful about what you do in your twenties and how you spend, you know, there's this book that was written a few years ago. That's really good called the defining decade Why your twenties matter. And you just don't want to squirrel them away. You know, you don't want to, Fritter fritter them away. you want you you can set your set yourself up for a lot of good things in your 20s. I'll find, also...
1: I'll find a link to that and put it on the show notes for the listeners. yeah, it's
0: it's a great book. I've given it to a lot of people who have said it was really, really helpful. Everyone knows like the you know the friend from college that was you know sort of did nothing with their lives and you know they wake up and they're thirty two years old and you know everyone's moved beyond them. So you don't want that to happen to you. And and you have to be intentional. Well, I think,
1: yeah. I mean, you have to take life by the horns and and face it. You can't just let life take you by the horns. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, and and you got to own it. I mean, that's one of the things I I think you have to do. It's really easy to be victimized, to say, oh, you know, I'm, you know, woe is me because this has happened to me. But you have the ability to say no. You have the ability to right the wrongs. You have the ability to make choices and, but you have to be willing, you know, a lot of people don't like making decisions because they're afraid to make the wrong decision. So you got to live with the decisions that you make, but you know, but you got to, you got to take some chances in life.
1: So this is the final question.
0: The final question.
1: If you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol beltway for millions to see, what would it say? Mm.
0: Well, I've thought about that question a lot over the last 18 months, you know, as we were sort of restricted. Mm-hmm. So I was tell you, and I turned 60 right at the start of COVID, mm. and I had a whole year of travel and all kinds of fun things planned, and all of those things were put on hold indefinitely. So if I had a billboard on the Beltway, it would probably say, if not now, When? That's great. And I think that's really important, particularly when you get to 60. You you know, you know have to be super intentional about what you do with your life. And mm-hmm. if you have a long bucket list, you better start making some
1: plans. Well, you'd like to live to do 100 or more, but you don't know how long it's going to be. You just so. don't know. Life is a gift, right? It sure <laughs> is. So, Julie, thank you very much for your time and for this great interview. I thought it was uh, really Wide ranging and good. Great. Well, Town,
0: I enjoyed it. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Thank you.
1: So we just listened to Julie Smith of Bazudo, who was very illuminating about her life and career at Bazudo, so long in the property management sector, and then now in a new role. She seems to be excelling at now, understanding the culture there and bringing to a unique perspective to. Uh, the property management business. I think she's one of the leaders and pioneers in the sector, frankly. Mm. So, as I usually do, uh, at the end of my podcast is I'm bringing on my cohort, Colin Madden. Colin, welcome.
4: Hey, John. Thanks uh, for having me again. Really enjoyed this one as well. You guys really dug into a number of hot topics. I would say that are floating around the real estate industry today, and a lot of it is is forced from COVID. But I definitely want to dig into it with you. And I guess to start off what where where do you see like the single family home asset class going it seems like blackstone kkar and all the big big real estate companies are really eating up all the all the available supply do you think this is a permanent shift in kind of the the landscape of real estate
1: it's interesting it's driven a lot of the value in markets that were struggling you know post uh, GM. Global financial crisis era is, of course, things got overbuilt, overleveraged, over leveraged, over, over financed and all that at that point. And it's taken a lot of time for the thing to shake out. As I mentioned, uh, with my discussion with Julie, I heard a podcast, I don't know, about a week or two ago about that industry and how the technology has changed the industry to manage the, the you know, disparate, Wide ranging properties over areas. As she Mm -hmm. talked about, it takes a almost like an Amazon fleet of of trucks to go out and take care of issues that occur on properties to, you know, make a a home ready for new occupants or to clean up a home after the occupants have left or turnover and that kind of thing. And then Mm -hmm. repairs and all that. So that's, it's, that's the logistical issue. And then there's a technology issue to manage all these things on a disparate basis. On mm-hmm. one site, it's <clears> one thing. It's quite disparate sites. It's different. Mm-hmm. But the technology, uh, improvements has really made this a viable business. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean to the overall single family home market? Well, it's going to drive prices up. It's in my mind, it's going to, you know, an anathema, obviously, to urban developers, is more and more green fields will be swallowed up
2: mm-hmm.
1: over time. So you'll have continual pushback by environmentalists because demand is going to be out there for that. And we have this, you know, global warming crisis. So there's
4: there's a lot of friction. Do you think kind of the American dream of you know growing up, getting married, buying a house is is not the case anymore? And and if if not People do seem to be permanently renting for the rest of their lives. Where do you think they store their their value, their their savings? If as as historically the the single family house is the the number one asset of most individuals in America, do you think this well, just shifts m- to equities or how many um, how many
1: generations have we talked about what you say the American dream? I mean, maybe three generations going back to the beginning of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. But potentially. Mm-hmm. So let's think about before that, how people lived. I mean, you know, of course we didn't have an automobile. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then it was homesteading and how did old people own real estate? You know, you got a homestead from the government and you go out and have this land and you'd farm it. You do that so that, you know, going to history, you know, it's only the last hundred years or so that we've had this American dream kind of
4: thing. Right. Yeah, I guess it, it must have automobile started with, uh, with FDR and, and Fannie Mae back in. It was before that. Or before then. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, it was post World War I when okay. the
1: automobile, that was, that's what, the, that was the growth of the suburbs and, mm-hmm. you know, outside the urban environment. The automobile drove that shopping centers and all that. It mm-hmm. exploded, of course, post World War II. So now we're in the information age and do, do people, And of course, the pandemic really accelerated this idea. You need to go to an office every day? No, you don't need to go to an office anymore. So the question is, where are you going to spend your time? You can spend it at home, go to a coffee shop, do your work. I mean, what either it, it, it offers a tremendous amount of variety. And the other thing is the tax laws implications too. So for instance, they just, you know, during the Trump administration, they, they took your deductibles and changed them so that this, the mortgage interest is no longer a deductible item on income tax. So that the incentives that I remember having when I was young, younger was, oh, okay, you own a home and you can write things off. You know, you write your interest off and all your, a lot of your costs and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a different game now. And so there isn't quite the incentive there. Obviously, appreciation is. Spectacular now, but it's primarily been seized on by Gen Gen X and Boomers, not as much by the Millennials. Mm -hmm. They haven't owned real estate long enough. So, yes, I think that rental may become the the predominant way of owning property going forward. My concern is, will institutional owners take care of their real estate the same way that an individual property owner will? And what what does that do to community building? An individual property ownership. Is there a different mindset if you're a tenant in a community than you are an owner? Mm-hmm. You have a stake in the land that you live in. I think time will tell there, but I think that it's a function of community itself, whether that's an ownership community or rental community, does that really make that much difference? I don't know. That's a social experiment that we'll have to understand. But you know, you talked to Julie Smith as a good example. I mean, they try to make their homes as they call them sanctuaries as a rental. Mm -hmm. They treat their their tenants as if they're owners. They they believe that. You know, you're you're here and this is your home. And as if you're you own you own part of this property. What in your space. Now legally that's not the case, but you know, they want to treat them as fellow owners. Right. So I think that's the, if that's the right mindset, and if the tenants feel that way, then they'll have pride in their, in their, in their rental property and take care of it
2: and
4: put a lot of time and energy into it. So you guys also dug in pretty heavily into flexibility and how flexibility is now an amenity from both resi and and office. Where do you see this leading? Do you, and and I believe you read the uh, drawer. Polleg like book on rethinking real estate, and he's I think his prediction was kind of office managers will merge with service type organizations and it'll become more of like space as a service and do you do you think there's this what are your thoughts on the future of that and are there is the winner of that new future if it is in fact going to happen already in existence right now or is it a new startup that we might not have heard of already well, it's interesting Julie
1: talked about the amenity wars mm-hmm. And so those amenities have expanded so dramatically now, which includes basically office space within a residential setup, right? Whether it's inside your unit, an office setup down in the lobby or a special office space within the building Mm -hmm. where you can go basically to do your calls, your meetings, whatever conference centers and all that. And then retail, of course, having retail on site. And proximate, proximate to the real estate, which is, you know, obviously another amenity. So yeah, I mean, this whole blending of uses is going to continue and be more and more prevalent going forward.
2: Mm.
4: Yeah. And I think maybe residential space may be changing to become both multifunctional, both, you know, living and, and working. And a colleague of mine actually sent me a link to. This company that it's essentially like a box that you would you would install into a space but you press a button and your bed rises hydraulically to the ceiling and once it's down you have a desk underneath your bed and it was very aesthetically pleasing it was great design and it it kind of blew my mind that yeah that's probably where things are headed like very dynamic spaces from from residential that will afford the opportunity for people to have that flexibility to either live work um, and play within, you know, a 700-square-foot apartment.
1: Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's an interesting flip on the idea of expanding and and the expansion of units to Mm -hmm. accommodate the office use. What you're saying is a multifunctional use of the same space, Mm -hmm. which is interesting. There's logistical and cost issues to that. So the question is, you know, does it make sense to offer that feature or to have more space? for that for different uses and you know i guess that it's a function of what you're comfortable with right Um, i don't know if i'd be comfortable you know doing business the same place i slept exactly the same space i slept in
4: but Mm -hmm.
1: that's a mindset it's a mindset
4: yeah or and maybe a cultural shift now that i don't know i feel like a lot of people did get used to that and maybe they are used to it but don't like it a lot of people yeah yeah, the pandemic forced a lot of people's hands to to work next to their bed
1: but i think also people wanted more space they just the feeling of being claustrophobic to some extent Mm -hmm. kind of took over for people so they needed to get out and you know into nature and relax and spread out a little bit more being closed up all that time was tough and so i think there's a there's a blooming this year it's like the flower came out but unfortunately the cdc is now coming back <laughs> with some unique restrictions mm-hmm. back at us california's shut down now or at least los angeles county and masks only right so we're yeah remasking now mm-hmm. and i think i i don't know if i heard today the district of columbia now every every building now interior you'd have
4: to wear a mask inside a building now yeah that's that's accurate i think it went out yesterday because we had put most of our signs away with the mandatory requirement and now we're bringing them back out so don't Um, throw them away (laughs) (laughs) hold on hold on to your signs um yeah we were we it felt so close to being out of the woods and now it's feels like we're we're trending the wrong direction again. So we'll see. But yeah, it was it was speaking of COVID, it was very interesting to see to hear her reaction to how their team worked and how the tenants were very happy for you know their their services during COVID. And I think one tenant said you guys were the best thing I had during this this pandemic, which is pretty powerful to hear, especially as you start rethinking how a landlord, um, an owner should be Interacting with their their client client base and tenants, so I think when you do have that very close, touch, high touch relationship, that's that almost feels like a loving relationship. It kind of makes you think that that's where we're trending. It's it's becoming extremely hospitality, oh. whether it's whether it's resi retail or or office now. That's that's what
1: sets Zudo apart from mm-hmm. most other managers because they've been doing that for years. Mm-hmm. That that attitude towards their tenants to hospitality perspective. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she, she said that, you know, they were what seventh for the sixth or seventh year in a row. They're one of the top five employer places to work as well as property management firms in the nation. Mm -hmm. And you have to give Julie a hundred percent of that, almost a hundred percent of that credit, not a hundred percent, but a good portion of that credit. Cause she, she's basically been the operating guru. Mm-hmm. For companies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The other guys are doing deals or developing their financing, their construction. She's the operating guru. You know, she's the architect of that whole property management behavioral at- attitude that they have there right. to create that environment. So yeah, it, she it, She's somebody to really look up to in that regard.
4: Yeah. It seems like their culture. Where the company is almost like a cultural flywheel, where they hire very well, very high quality and passionate individuals with core values, which she she discussed, which ultimately will just flow down to the tenant-facing employees. So, if you start with the right people, it flows through, and then when you have a culture of of you know being a great place to work and having tenants that do engage with you the way it seems they that they are, it's probably easy to hire those types of employees and that's yeah, the so flywheel spins. Sure.
1: And, you know, she, she talked about her father being a high school principal mm-hmm. or high no, elementary school principal and the way he treated, you know, challenging children and their parents and all that. Mm-hmm. And then her girlfriends in high school used to come and just spill their guts with him because he yeah. would listen to them and say, <laughs> They left and said, Oh, I love being with your dad. He's so mm-hmm. great. <laughs> and she took that and in her, I mean, she absorbed that. And, and then she said she lost her dad. It was the worst thing that ever happened to her. Right. Her dad was, was her guiding light, obviously.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: that's the way she treats people, the way her father treated people. And that's, she she learned that from him. And that's getting back to why I do this podcast and why it's so long these episodes mm-hmm. is i want to know what causes people to be what they are and until you get to the roots and understanding who their influences were you really don't know that mm-hmm. and that's why it was interesting to hear yeah you know cuz i wanted to understand what makes her so special and that's mm-hmm. what does that's part of it at least
4: right yeah, and I also enjoy what uh, part of the reason I like the long form podcast is because you can't really fake I don't know an image for for a you know hour and a half two hours if you if you're watching kind of hot takes on a news network or something you don't really get a feel for the individual so no besides a book I think you know these long form podcasts are the best best way to really you know from upbringing to to career get to get a feel mm-hmm. for someone and. Typically, most of your guests check out. <laughs> in fact, you know all of the ones I've heard; they've always been very impressive. Seem to have very deep core values of giving well, back to the community, hard work. Yeah,
1: they wouldn't be where to, they are, and they wouldn't be mm-hmm. leaders, and they wouldn't be icons mm-hmm. if they weren't special people. And right. having to overcome problems and challenges in their in their younger life uh, to be successful where they are today.
4: You and she spoke, you know, a good amount about ULI. It sounds like. She cares deeply about ULI and gives back a lot through her, her work with that. And I know you do the same and have done the same for over 20 years, I, I have to imagine. At, at least. I guess, what, what is it about ULI that, that keeps coming back? What, what do you get out of it? It's, it's the best
1: organization in the commercial real estate sector, bar none, as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. And the reason it's so good is it's, it's, it, it doesn't advocate political, on a political agenda for one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: it's the think tank of our industry. I mean, it has, you know, all the research that you want, all the understanding, all the basis you know, why people do what they do, the origin of all development aspects and, and all real estate, everything from infrastructure to, I mean, just anything that you want to think about the ESG, mm-hmm. all the subjects that are relevant today. And, were relevant fifty years ago. Yeah. It was started all by development developers around the country that came together and said, let's share best practices amongst each other. We're not competitors. So we they spill their guts to people. And that's how they and that's that's what's so great about it. And that's what I I believe strongly in that idea of being very transparent Mm -hmm. about the issues because that's the only way you it's a hard business. It's not easy to be successful with mm-hmm. a lot of moving parts that you don't have a lot of control over. So if you learn from other people about how to do something, it could save tons of time and money. Yeah. And that's what we all live to, know, to do as best we can, obviously. So it's a great organization for sharing ideas and learning. And, and I've maximized my effort there. Just about the only role I haven't done is what Julie's doing now. And that's chairing the ULI Washington District Council. Mm -hmm. I'm not a full member, nor am I a member of a product council. So I could, I've been asked to be on a couple of them. And I just decided I want to commit myself locally and not nationally. And I Mm -hmm. think that's a function of my focus. But Julie is on the National Housing, Multi-Housing Council Board as well, (coughs) as well as chairing ULI Washington, which is a big job. It's the second largest district council now so it's there's a lot of people involved thousands Mm -hmm. of people so
4: big effort right speaking of that how you know she volunteers with a lot of organizations and she's probably extremely busy at work and seemingly is spread thin but then she also said that you know how you do anything is kind of how you do everything how how do you think one should kind of manage their time as to not saying no to opportunities that could, you know, help help their career grow, but also not getting spread too thin as to whatever you're saying yes to, you're not doing a bad job that that gets reflected on your. I guess someone would assume that that's how you do everything. At
1: the end of the conversation, we talked about her family a little bit. She has two daughters, and neither of them are in middle state, mm-hmm. but she took them to jobs and. Projects and her husband is a developer as well. So, you know, real estate was a conversation piece every night almost. And she admits, she admits she was away a lot, traveling quite a bit, but her girls understood it and, you know, rolled with the punches a little bit. Mm -hmm. But so she probably overcommitted a little bit and she admitted that. Right. So, but you know, she was passionate about it. Mm-hmm. And her father kind of taught her to give back. It's really important to contribute to the community, right so you know that's that's in her soul, I think mm-hmm. It just had to make sure that her children were adequately you know taught and understood that that's a commitment that and my guess is that they learn from that and will probably do the same in their lives, right more than likely. Yes,
4: I'll end on. The last question, I believe it was the last question of, you know, what you would put on the billboard, which was take chances in life and, you know, take more risk, which I'd have to check my notes, but I think Monty Hoffman said something very similar. Yes. I think Bob Kettler said something very similar. Yes. And maybe even John Peterson. It's a common theme. (laughs) So it seems, yeah, it seems to be a very common theme. Is that, is that the, the secret Just taking risks? Well, from an entrepreneurial
1: (laughs) standpoint. You know, the only thing holding you back is yourself. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So, you know, it's that, it's that conversation in your brain that's going on all the time. (laughs) Do I do it or Mm -hmm. do I not do it? And when should I do it? Mm -hmm. And why should I do it? And, uh, sometimes the best advice is just do it. Do start doing something. Doesn't have to be perfect just get out there and start doing it. And you're going to learn along the way. And that's what a journey is. what a mm-hmm. life journey is. So what, you know, and when I do the, my mentor groups, that's what I try and instill in all the mentor things that I do at ULI's mentor program is to instill, Hey, don't, don't hesitate. Go, you know, if your inclination is to do something, do it. Don't, don't hesitate. Don't, Mm-hmm. And that's to, with about anything. If you want to, if you see somebody that across the room that you'd like to meet, go up and and introduce yourself. Go oh, no, and go back. You know, I mean, I, I I know when I was young, it's interesting. You know, my job was to go talk to people and meet. Mm-hmm. And so there would be times where I have this feeling in my stomach. Oh, I'm not so sure. I just, you know, I'm just, I don't know. What's he going to think? And, you know, and I was like. Shh. You know, it's amazing. You If you take the initiative and go and meet somebody or talk to them, mm-hmm. you nine times out of ten, 90% of the time, you're going to be rewarded. Right. Way more than, you know, rebuffed. Right. And, of course, the way you approach somebody is important. You don't want to come across as trying to pitch them or trying to get their business card and just walk away. And you you have to show genuine interest and you've got to listen to what they say. And, you know, so there's a way to do that. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I just go
4: for it. Yeah. So many people have said that in in many different ways.
2: Right.
4: Yeah. Now I just uh, need to figure out what it is to go for. (laughs) Well, just come up with a business plan and do
1: it. Yeah, exactly. So, so uh, speaking of the mentorship program and, sharing ideas, I want to, for the listeners, I want to suggest or introduce, I have a new membership program that I'm building that I'm planning to roll out in September that is taking the the podcast here, the episodes of of a year old and older, and putting them behind into a membership pay situation. And we're going to have interviews with industry leaders. I'm going to have events. We're going to have a dialogue or a bit more an online forum to talk about careers. And I'm going to have a career journey path as well that I'm creating somewhat from my career planning curriculum. So for those listeners out there that are between the ages of 22 and 40, In the commercial real estate sector. This is for you, this membership program, and I hope you uh, can join me. So, this episode should be going out early August for this one, and then in mid August, August 18th roughly, Colin and I are gonna uh, have a special episode in lieu of our bi weekly one and talk about these new membership cohort, which is gonna be called Iconic journey in CRE. So we're going to limit it to a hundred members and we're going to, in that age group of 22 to 40. And I'm looking for people that are engaged and really are interested in, in a commercial real estate, commercial real estate career. And it could be from any of the disciplines that you can think of in the, the deal with it. So architects, engineers, operators, developers, Lawyers, attorneys, accountants, anybody that's involved, marketing people, construction folks. It's open to any discipline. And we're going to talk about careers in all the disciplines and options for that because that's who I've interviewed. I've interviewed people from a wide range of the disciplines in our industry. And so we'll talk about those interviews, ideas that came out of it. And I have a new software product that is uh, forming a venture with me that's going to distribute those ideas in an interesting way called napkin. So they're going to be involved in the, in this membership cohort as well. So again, it's an invitation to all of you to
4: join and Colin, any thoughts on this? No, I think it's great. I know we are involved with another type of group that I think we both get a lot out of. And I think something like this is, is lacking in the area somewhere you can, you know, Bounce ideas off one another on like an online forum and learn from each other and do meetups and, you know, just another venue to network within the D.C. real estate industry. And I'm excited for it. Great. Great. So, listeners, stay
1: tuned for the, uh, the next episode after this one. This will be Colin and I dedicated to this discussion. And then beyond that, I have interviews set up with some, uh, some more industry greats that are coming. One of the top office brokerage teams in the city, and then one of the leading affordable housing developer operators in the city as well, coming up in late September and early October. So stay tuned. We're, we're going to continue ICON's TCR Real Estate ongoing, but this is a new membership cohort that I hope you can get involved in as well. So thank you for listening and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Take care.